Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 19 of the Essential X Lapsed, where I think, if I'm not mistaken, we might be wrapping up our first two-part X-Men story. Trying to think back, have we had a two-parter yet? Huh, this might be the first one, I, unless I'm, I'm forgetting an extremely obvious um, example. This is it. So, uh, yeah, let's get on into it. This is X-Men number 13. At a September 1965 cover date, the story is called Where Walks the Juggernaut? Written and edited by Stan Lee with layouts by Jack Kirby. Pencils come to us from Werner Roth under the guise of Jay Gavin. Inks Joe Sinnott. Letters Sam Rosen. Colors by whoever it is be. Uh, cover price 12 cents. And this is the first issue of X-Men under the Marvel Pop Art Productions uh, little uh, little button banner thing there. I don't know how long it'll last. I don't think it lasts terribly long. But uh, let's get on into it here. We pick up right where we left off last issue. The Juggernaut has stood before Professor X while the X-Men kind of just stand there in awe. Xavier sends the kids away, not wanting to endanger them further by, you know, standing them before his wicked stepbrother. Now, Jean puts up a little bit of an argument, to which Xavier just calls her girl and tells her to do as she's told. And uh, he's going to refer to her simply as girl a few times during this issue. Now, with the X-Men out of the way, Juggernaut gets in Xavier's face and explains that it took him years to pull himself free from that Sidorak temple in Korea. And as mentioned last episode, that sounds almost heroic, right? Um, now, as he comes closer to the professor, his sheer aura flips Charles's wheelchair over on its side. Kane promises to destroy his stepbrother now... And forever. Chuck is all not so fast, Kano Sabi, because I have my bodacious mutant brain. And with that, he zaps Jugs with a bolt of mental energy. And it staggers the baddie a bit, but doesn't actually bowl him over or anything. Now it's here where Kane reveals that the crimson bands of Sidorak gave him his snazzy helmet, which also just so happens to protect him from psionic attacks. And speaking of attacks, at this point, Cyclops orders the X-Men to do just that. Marvel Girl uses her powers of teleport kinesis to hoist the baddie up. And uh, it's called teleportation again. Uh, remember, she could barely hold the beast up like an issue or two ago. So to hold the juggernaut up is... Uh, well, that's a feat, isn't it? Cyclops then optic blasts deep into the floor, creating a very neat, tidy, and deep canyon in the Xavier living room. Jean dumps the lump down the hole, buying the X-Men precious few seconds to get their stuff together. Now Bobby, he decides to drop a pumpkin-sized ice block down the hole as a forget-me-not to Juggernaut. You know, like, instead of just filling the entire hole with ice, he just throws a, throws a ball down there. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Xavier is helped back to his chair by Angel and asks Jean to come with him to his lab so he can put on his... Mento Helmet. Wow, another Doom Patrol thing in an X-Book. Now, DC's Mento Helmet first appeared in Doom Patrol number 91. That had a November 1964 cover date, so nearly a year before this issue came out. Granted, I mean, it's not exactly the most creatively named thingamabob, so I don't think we can say that this was a blatant copy. And I mean, it's the Mento Helmet. People like us are the only ones who will notice this or even care. So, now you might be asking, what exactly is a Mento Helmet, and what can it do? At least in the Marvel Universe, what the hell's a Mento Helmet? Well, here's the thing. 
It can intensify Xavier's brain waves, making them even more powerful than they already are. With every second that Xavier wears the dopey thing, the power coils charge and empower him. So much so that the psionic power actually overflows, leading him to have to like release it so his head doesn't pop, kind of like a uh, like a pressure valve here. And I mean, this whole thing kind of seems stupid and pointless, doesn't it? Eh, maybe a little bit. Meanwhile, back in the hole, we get a page of Juggernaut basically playing Dig Dug to get himself out. Like, these panels literally look like Dig Dug. You almost gotta see him to believe it. Uh, now, Cyclops is just firing a steady shot of his cursed optic blast into the hole. Which, I mean, after like a minute of seeing this having no effect on their foe, might make a more well-adjusted superhero decide to try a different tack. Now, Jugs dig dugs through, and he bursts through the floor right under our nearsighted hero. From here, we go into full-blown horror movie mode, where the Juggernaut slowly, slowly stalks our heroes. And, and it must be... I, I can't emphasize this enough. It is very, very slow. Now, Cyclops is nearly pinned down, until Angel reminds him that, uh, Hey, you know what, Scotty? You've got legs. Maybe you ought to try and maybe kick the bad guy. And so he does. But, I mean, it's the Juggernaut, so it's not all that effective. Though, it is somehow effective enough to nudge the baddie back far enough for Scott to pull himself back up to his feet, which is a uh, a pretty crazy thing, though, isn't it? Scott and Warren then attempt a very sad dog pile on the Juggernaut, which looks like uh, like when a pair of toddlers hang off like their father's arms or legs or something as he walks. It's, it's very cute. Back to the Mento Helmet. Now, we see Xavier's mental energy releasing all over the city. Now, we have an airplane pilot feeling a weird message as he flies over the city, but not through their radio. We jump over to the Teen Brigade, who also feel this psychic message, but just not through their ham radios. And now the Teen Brigade was formed by Rick Jones and Incredible Hulk number 6 as a network of, uh, well, teens who, uh, via the use of their ham radios, attempt to help the world in any way they can. Then in a New York courtroom, one Matt Murdock also hears this message, but he's stuck working a trial, so he can't Daredevil up to check it out. And, you know, we don't often see Daredevil in the X-Book, so this is uh, pretty neat. I don't think we'll see him again until, like, 1996 or something like that. It's uh, right after Operation Zero Tolerance. I think it's like a Cecilia Reyes story, and uh, I know Daredevil takes part in that, so that might be the next time we see him in an X-Book. We go back to the mansion, where Jean suggests that they uh, take Xavier and run. You know, let's get out of here, let's get him to safety. But Chuck refuses to leave, fearing that Kane will just destroy the city if they do. Xavier then dispatches Bobby and Hank to help Warren and Scott slow the Juggernaut's path of rage. And it's crazy to consider that the Professor was cool with, like, just Scott and Warren holding the Juggernaut off up until now. It's like, it's just two little Weasley kids here, right? Then again, they kind of are his, uh, you know, main rivals for the affections of Jean Grey, right? So maybe there was a method to his madness. Uh, then Jean asks what she can do. What can I go to? To which Chuck simply refers to her as girl again and tells her to cool her jets because she'll eventually get her chance to disappoint him as well. Back to the horror movie playing out in the living room. The uh, juggernaut slowly, slowly makes his way toward the staircase. Warren is riding him piggyback while Scott continuously releases an optic blast right into Juggy's head. I mean, it hasn't worked for the first 500 times, but what are you going to do? Kane finally snapped Mare's angel over right into Cyclops' blast. 
He then goes to grab Scott, but the floor turns to ice because the cavalry has arrived. Back to Xavier, who is still mentoing out. He manages to get his distress call out to Johnny Storm, who is uh, just about to test drive a friend's hot rod while wearing his Fantastic Four costume, so I guess he's really proud of it. Or maybe that's the only way we would know it was him. I don't know. Anyway, Johnny doesn't immediately trust the weird psychic message he's receiving, and so he sort of breaks off contact. Yeah, he's, he's kind of worried that it's a trick, because Reed had warned him to be extra careful right now because we're in the lead-up to the big wedding. And our footnote here informs us that the wedding will be taking place in uh, Fantastic Four Annual Number 4. It's actually Fantastic Four Number 3, and... Uh, This is why we don't edit our own footnotes there, Stanley. Um, And we will be discussing Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 next episode. The uh, X-Men do play a fairly prominent role in it, and it's also just such a seminal and important moment in Marvel history, so I I figured we should cover it in depth. So back to the mansion. Um, Xavier informs Jean that he made contact with the Human Torch, but it was broken off. So here's my question. Is Xavier wearing the Mento helmet to intensify his powers to deal with the Juggernaut himself? Or to send out a psychic distress call? Because if it's the latter, I mean, we've already seen that the X-Men are part of like a superhero radio network where they can get in touch with the Avengers or Fantastic Four whenever they need to. So why does he need to Mento out here? Uh, Oh well. Xavier tells Jean that he's going to try to contact the Torch again because he absolutely needs his power to take down Kane. Speaking of whom, let's go back to the horror show. Iceman has fully encased the Juggernaut in a cube of ice. Any guesses what happens next? Well, just like any time Iceman encases someone in a block of ice, Juggernaut shatters his way out of it. Beast then literally bounces in, ping-ponging all over the hallway, bouncing off walls and Juggernaut himself. And it's about as effective as you might imagine, which is to say, not at all. Hank then lands on Kane's head and attempts to put him in a headlock. And, I mean, Juggernaut's wearing that big old helmet. Like, There's like no neck there, right? So it's not like Hank can hope to cut off an airway or something. It's just, uh, just for looks, I guess. Kane grabs the barefoot beast by his bare foot and slams him into the ground. He then karate chops Hank's Achilles, which really takes some spring out of his step. Henry crawls away, luring the Juggernaut into a very special and dangerous room. Now, once Kane's inside, Hank triggers the danger room into action. Juggernaut is, unsurprisingly, able to hold his own in the danger room, even sending many of the obstacles and, you know, dangers right back at Hank. Now, while they continue doing their thing, let's let's hop back to Johnny Storm. Now, Xavier manages to get through to him again, and this time he's able to convince him to head to the mansion to help out. Meanwhile, Xavier and Jean have thrown in with the rest of the goofs in fighting off the Juggernaut. Jean once again teleport kinetically lifts Kane off the ground, but then the Human Torch swoops in. Chuck instructs him to fly in circles around the Juggernaut's head. Really, that's that's it. Charles then wakes the Angel and instructs him to fly in circles around the Juggernaut's head. Now, by now, the torch has moved on to releasing a burst of fiery light which temporarily blinds the baddie. Now, while Kane fumbles and stumbles around, Warren swoops back in and snatches the helmet right off of Marco's dome. Finally, no longer protected by his psionic shield, Xavier levels his stepbrother with a wallop of mental hoo-ha. Juggernaut hits the ground, and, uh, 
well, we don't know what happens to him next. Now, as the dust settles here, uh, does anybody have any guesses as to how Professor X expresses his gratitude to the Human Torch? You know, the guy who trusted the creepy bald man in his head to uh, come to the mansion and help out? Well, it is the Silver Age, so if you guessed Mind Wipe, then you win the pony. Now, a clueless, well, even more clueless, Johnny Storm flies away not knowing where he's been or what he'd been doing. And we close out with the four boys being waited on by Nurse Jean. Xavier promises the fellas a gift when they get better. And that gift is brooms so they can clean up the mess that the mansion's been left in. Waka, waka, waka. That's where we leave it. Next episode, possibly the biggest Marvel event of its time, the wedding of Sue Storm and Reed Richards. And now into our always amusing letters page here. We're going to start with a letter from Larry in New York. He claims that he was very scared when Cyclops asked Xavier if the X-Men would have to disband back in X-Men number 11, but was wildly relieved when Xavier said no. He asks how Cyclops opens his visor, and uh, that's just asking for a lot of panels of Cyclops in uh, partial visor rising. And uh, yeah, we'll be getting a lot of that in the next several episodes here. Um... Back to Larry, he uh, thought that the cover of issue 11 featured some bad coloring, said the faces were left just plain white and not skin-toned, though he doesn't mention that the art was just, like, plain ugly, because, oof, that was an ugly cover. Uh, He wants to know how Xavier gets away with working with the X-Men in secret, despite, like, always being seen with them. That's a pretty great question. Now, Stan promises to talk about Sykes' visor later, and boy, will he. And he has no excuse for having Xavier seen with the X-Men all the time and offers a double-sized no-prize to anyone who can offer a decent explanation. Orin in Colorado. More coloring queries here. He asks why the stranger's beard was green on page 3, panel 5. It's like, really? He also wants more of the stranger, to which I say, really? (laughs) Do you? Um, Now Stan points out that the stranger's beard is not green in the mag. And I checked the Marvel Unlimited version, since those are the only color versions I've got access to, and I can confirm that Stan is right, so maybe Orin just has a dirty copy. Philip in Pennsylvania, loved X-Men number 11, refers to it as, quote, the most unique story, plot, and art in all of literature. Wow. Um, he says Magneto is the best villain that Marvel's got, so he's sure he'll be back eventually. And he suggested he might send Stan a hacksaw to free himself from the typewriter that he's chained to. Stan confirms that he's not chained to a typewriter. He actually is a typewriter. So uh, you heard it here first. Gary in California. Now you remember how all those letters were telling Stan that they were tired of Magneto and the Brotherhood and that they should go? Well, just like clockwork, as soon as he's gone, people are trying to figure out ways to get him back. Now, Gary simply suggests that Magneto, Toad, and Mastermind escape the stranger. Okay, easy enough, right? Though Gary must have forgotten that the last time we saw Mastermind, he was stuck in, like, a statue form at the X-Mansion. He didn't actually go with Magneto or Toad. Now, he suggests that when Mags comes back, he draft two new mutants to replace Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, and he warns that this shouldn't happen for at least five issues. That way, everyone will have already forgotten about Magneto. Okay, pal. Stan's reply is, well, classic Stan. He he worries that uh, not only will the fans forget about Magneto, but uh, he's afraid he will too. So, there's that. Eddie in Texas. 
He loved issue 11, and he compared the stranger to the Watcher. And, uh, yeah, you know what? Um, my first ever experience with the Watcher and the stranger was through the Marvel Universe Series 3 card set, where they were both, like, in the Cosmic Entities subset. So I think I always subconsciously compared them as well, along with, like, Eternity and the Living Tribunal and Ego the Living Planet and a slew more that were in that little subset. Now, Eddie's happy that Magneto is gone, and he claims that, uh, he was never attracted to him. You get it? Magnet? Attraction? Okay. Uh, he wonders if Professor X is a fugitive, explaining why he's always running from the police. Now, Stan replies that a lot of folks wrote in to compare the stranger to the Watcher, and he wonders if he'll ever put them in a story together. And uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of one, but it almost certainly happened. Uh, maybe someone can fill me in, so uh, we know which book to avoid in the future. Next up, Roger in Massachusetts. He's very pleased about Cap's kooky quartet, and also about how Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch have officially crossed over onto the good guy's side, and he thinks that this new Avengers team is going to be a lot of fun. As for the X-Men, Roger thinks Magneto is a cornball, and he's happy to see him gone. He likes the X-Men's personalities, uh, and claims that... This is an odd claim. He uh, claims that Angel talks a lot like Jack Kirby. I... 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 Hmm, I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Uh, he also suggests giving Angel a war cry. Now, um, if you were to give Angel a war cry, what would it be? What would it be? Um, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head because, uh, frankly, I don't think he needs one. But Roger, he suggests flaps up, which is uh, only mildly perverted, I suppose. Maybe I'll start interjecting that into my own uh, vernacular here. Uh, when I'm about to do something, I'll say flaps up, and then I'll probably be arrested or something. I don't know. Uh, next up, Guy in California. All he can say about X-Men number 11 is, wow, but still spends about four paragraphs to express that thought. Finally, Pedro in Australia. He comments at how crazy it is for people with such low IQs as Stan and Jack to be able to put out such great comics. He comes to us with a question, though. Uh, he asks how Warren was able to hide his wings from his parents for his entire life. And Stan promises to explain it all just as soon as he figures it out himself. And uh, indeed, it won't be too long before we get a scene which fully explains how Warren was able to hide his wings. Next up, the proto-bullpen bulletins, also known as important announcements or something like that. Um, Let's see, Marvel Annuals from 1965 are all the rage. Uh, the Fantastic Four features the wedding and that we will be getting to next episode. Spider-Man's going to meet up with Doctor Strange. Thor is going to fight Hercules. Uh, not sure if it's the first time they met, but uh, if so, it'll be the first of several thousand uh, fights between the two. Uh, Sergeant Fury will feature the Korean War. And Marvel Tales gets an annual, which features a reprint of X-Men number 1, also a story from Amazing Adult Fantasy, and some other stuff. Uh, in other news, Stan thanks the Village Voice for their kind write-up on Marvel. And finally, Merry Marvel Marchers have received Marvel stationery and t-shirts as part of their memberships. And there is a coupon included on the letters page here if you want to join the MMMS, along with instructions for who to make the check or money order out to. Only thing missing is they don't tell us how much to make the check out for. But lucky for all of us here, I have access to... Uh well, the original scans of these issues here. So I was able to find the actual Merry Marvel bullpen page here, which does tell us how much to make these uh, money orders out for. If you want to buy an X-Men t-shirt, if 
from the Merry Marvel Marchers that'll set you back $1.50. Stationery is only a buck, but uh, everything you order, you need to send an extra 15 cents for uh, shipping and handling. So if you're interested, I'm sure operators are still standing by. Um, now we'll wrap up here with the mighty Marvel checklist here. Other books coming out with this same cover date include Fantastic Four number 43, and that features the dramatic fate of the thing and the startling secret of the Human Torch. Neither of those things I remember. Uh, Spider-Man 29 features the Scorpion showing up again. Avengers number 20 promises to answer the question, what befalls the swordsman? Daredevil number 9, uh, DD heads to another country and invades a castle. Thor 120 features the return of the Absorbing Man. Strange Tales 137, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. versus Hydra. You know, like, basically every Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. story. And Doctor Strange confronts the Ancient One. Tales of Suspense number 7, the Iron Man vs. Titanium Man, and Captain America has a dilemma. Tales to Astonish 72 features Adam Austin art on Submariner. I don't know who Adam Austin is. Um, but Hulk's story, it needs to be seen to be believed. It, the, words cannot even express what happens in this Hulk story. Which is to say... Um, Probably nothing, or Stan hasn't written it, or maybe Stan wrote it and he forgot. It's probably one of those. Uh, finally, Sergeant Fury number 22 is World War II's Plosti, Plisti, um, P-L-O-E-S-T-I, however you pronounce that, Air Raid, and it features Nick Fury and Bull McGivney. I don't know who that last one is, but uh, I'm sure he's important. So with all that out of the way, what did we think about this issue? Um... I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, it's going to become like a meme. It's, uh, you know, silly but fun. That's how you explain most of these stories, right? Uh, we look at things like Professor X putting on the Mento helmet to... Well, we thought he was going to do it so he can amplify his power so he can, like, penetrate through the Juggernaut's helmet. But then it turned out to be something different, wherein, like, his brain became so overloaded it had to release before his head popped... But then that was, like, the goal all along because he was trying to reach the Human Torch for some reason. Um, when they have, like, that little radio gimmick that we saw a couple of episodes ago where the X-Men can contact any superheroes and ask for help. I mean, that's a little weird, a little silly. Um, but, you know, I got handed to Stan. He is, a, uh, he is a salesman, and there is a mighty big Fantastic Four story that I'm sure he wants in as many hands as possible, right? The... The Wedding Between Reed and Sue, which really is such a pivotal moment in the shared Marvel Universe. It's a pretty big deal here, and I mean, it's hard to kind of look at that in hindsight and consider it as big a deal as it probably was at the time, but uh, I think we can all agree that it is an important moment. So Stan wants to make sure that people know that this thing is coming out. Unfortunately, he puts the wrong issue number in the footnote, so... Uh, I mean, there's only one Fantastic Four annual a year, so uh, if, if you see one that has a cover that says, you know, it's all here, the wedding of Reed and Sue, you're probably not going to question much. I really dug the uh, horror movie vibe we got here, where, I mean, Juggernaut is just taking his time here. He's playing with his food, basically. He's not in a big rush, you know. He's uh, slowly, slowly stalking these uh, these dopey kids and just having fun with them. It's uh, I thought this was really cool. It makes him like a different sort of villain, because all the other villains we've seen so far have been, 
you know, in your face. You know, if we're going to fight, we fight right now. And Juggernaut just didn't seem to uh, prioritize fighting quite as much. He's just like, yeah, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you eventually. It doesn't matter to me when. I'm just going to, you know, take my time and uh, enjoy every, <laughs> every minute of this. And perhaps my favorite part of this was that it was a two-part story. You know, um, everything we've seen so far have been single-issue stories, of course, with continuity, right? Um, if the X-Men got beat up, they're still licking their wounds at the beginning of the next issue, but it's not like a straightaway, you know, part two of two sort of a situation like we have here. And uh, that's a trend that's not going to go away, really. Um, after we get back from the Fantastic Four annual, we're going to actually kick off a three-part storyline uh, featuring the Sentinels. So... I think we're getting into longer-form storytelling, and uh, I really dig that. Um, I'm pretty sure the fans of the day probably weren't too keen on it, considering how, you know, they had to depend on newsstands to get their books here. So if you get the first part, you might not get the second, or you might have missed the first and only found the second. So I can see the fans of the mid-60s being like, wait, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know, I want my, I want a beginning, middle, and end in every single issue. But uh, for us more, uh, well, not much more contemporary, but relatively speaking, more contemporary readers, uh, this, is a, uh, this is a hallmark of comics that we're going to be seeing forevermore, the uh, multi-part story arc. And part of me wonders if uh, Stan's going to get any clap back for doing this. And uh, I say that with, like, one raised eyebrow, because I know there will be some clapback uh, to this uh, in the next several uh, letters pages. But we'll get there when we get there. Uh, one last thing about the art here. This is the first time we're seeing uh, Jay Gavin, or uh, Werner Roth, on pencils under Jack's uh, layouts here. And I quite liked it. Um, nothing against Jack. I, we've talked about Jack Kirby's work and how it's uh, I'm kind of hot and cold on it. It's not my favorite, but I don't hate it either. It's just kind of there. But I think in the last few issues that he was penciling on his own, it was feeling kind of apparent that maybe he didn't have the time for this book. Because, I mean, that, that issue with The Stranger uh, immediately pops out as just not being all that pleasant to look at. And it's hard to hold that against Jack, right? He was probably drawing uh, in the triple digits of pages every month, right? He was just drawing so many comic pages and... As deadlines loom and as just, you know, being overworked, you know, kicks in, you, you might take a few shortcuts here, you might make it a little bit looser, you may leave out some backgrounds, it's, uh, I mean, it's just, it's a necessity when you're that overworked, so I'm happy that he's still on layouts, but I'm also happy that we are getting a penciler who can maybe dedicate more time and care to each issue of X-Men uh, moving forward. But I think that's all I have to say about this issue, and I think that's about all we got for the show today. Uh, I do want to mention one thing before I get into the plugs here. Uh, last episode, I had put in a uh, something I called a plea for dissent, um, where I explained that I got a pretty awful <laughs> and harmful review on uh, iTunes from a listener, and basically put it out there that if uh, our opinions don't line up, that's okay, and uh, maybe reach out so we can enter into a dialogue or a discussion rather than running off to a review aggregate trying to, you know, hurt my show, hurt the thing that I spend so much time, energy, passion, and love on, you know. There's got to be a more constructive way to have these conversations, right, is uh, what I was getting at here. And I had actually broken that little snippet out of the show and made a little weird uh, social media video gimmick thing just in case people don't listen to the show, they might not listen to the essentials. You know, it's it was just a way to get it out there so 
it was out there. And I tell you what, um, the outpouring of support and kindness that I got from folks when I shared that, uh, it was almost hard for me to take. Um, I was uh, so taken aback. Um, It's so easy to fall into um, the negative when something like that were to happen. It, It does get under your skin, and it might make you... Forget about all the good and only focus on the bad. And I got a firm reminder that there's a lot of good. And there are folks that do appreciate this program. And uh, at the risk of being a little too precious, it did choke me up a bit. So I want to thank everyone for their kind words. Um, it, it, was not a, it was not a fun weekend. <laughs> so uh, it really means a lot to me that there are folks out there who uh, are willing to be kind to uh, some idiot behind a microphone. So thank you all so much. And uh, if there's anyone out there who would like to get a hold of me, you could find me a few different places. Still on Twitter for now, you can find me at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can head to Chris's on Infinite Earths for blog posts and show notes. And you can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Finally, for all the Chris and Reggie archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet sends noise. And hey, uh, only if you want to. Uh, I'm, I'm taking good reviews if you think I deserve one. I would appreciate uh, any help I can get in that uh, arena at the moment. But that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 20 of the Essential X-Lapse, where I'm using some different headphones today, so I hope this doesn't sound too strange. Because I tell you what, it sounds very, very strange to me. Uh, the wife had to go in for a uh, root canal just now, and uh, they told her to, you know, bring headphones because it's going to be a pretty long session. And, uh, you know, you do whatever you can to make it a little bit more pleasant. And since we are still, after, boy, six months, eight months, <laughs> we're still eight months into a move, uh, the only headphones that we had in the house were uh, mine, the ones that I use for the show. So, uh she took those, and I'm using some very, very cheap ones that I think I got at, uh, at the dollar store, just so I would have a, a backup pair in the uh, nightstand. But we will see how this goes. Um, today, we have a very special issue from uh, the Marvel Silver Age here. Probably one of the more important issues of the era. And it's not an issue of X-Men, but it does feature them somewhat prominently. They, they show up. That, that much I can assure you. Uh, this is The Wedding of Sue Storm and Reed Richards. This is Fantastic Four Annual number 3, 1965. Stories called Bedlam at the Baxter Building, written and edited by Stan Lee. Pencils Jack Kirby, inks Vince Coletta. Letters Artie Simic. Uh, colors, pfft, still don't know. Uh, cover price, not 12 cents, but 25 cents. This is a... Uh, I think there are three or four stories in this issue here. We have the, the main wedding story as well as uh, maybe two backups, uh, two reprints that are, uh, that are being put together in this package here. But let's get into it. We open with Dr. Doom reading a copy of the Daily Press, not the Daily Bugle. I mean, <laughs> the Bugle circulation must have sucked back in the Silver Age. Uh, anyway, the front page news story is that today is the day that Reed Richards and Sue Storm will stop living in the Baxter Building in Sin and make their awkwardly aged relationship official in the eyes of the law. They are getting married. Doom is quite displeased by this, and he tears up the paper as he sits on his Latverian throne. And I tell you, the Daily Press, uh, if they can deliver a daily paper to Latveria, that's, that's pretty impressive. So, uh, hey, up yours, Jameson. Um, anyway... He then kicks his way into his lab to try to figure out a way to ruin the big day. You see, he's going to use his emotion charger to make every evil... Let me see if I can get this word straight. I've, I've gone over this line about five times so far, and I can't seem to say the word menace. I keep saying menace. So uh, let's let's give it a shot here. He's going to use his emotion charger... Char oh boy, now I'm messing up other words. You get what I'm trying to say here. He's got an emotion charger. It's going to make every evil menace in existence crawl out of the woodwork to crash the wedding. Now, he claims that doing it today will be the, when the Fantastic Four least expect it, which we already know that that isn't true from what Johnny Storm said in his X-Men cameo last episode here. Reed told him to be extra alert since, you know, this is the most opportune time to strike the Fantastic Four. So I guess Doom didn't, didn't read the, uh, the cameo there. From here, we shift over to the outside of the Baxter Building, where it's a sea of humanity. Now, if there were rafters, people would surely be swinging from them. Now, it looks like Stan and Jack make their first of two guest appearances in the issue right here. Elsewhere in the mob, Ben Grimm welcomes Tony Stark, who is dressed like Zatara, top hat and all. He's got a lady with him, who doesn't get acknowledged. Maybe it's Pepper Potts, maybe it's not, I don't know. Elsewhere still, Patsy and Hetty, from Patsy and Hetty, they've arrived... Uh, Patsy Walker would go on to become Hellcat, of course. Uh, Hetty Wolf would uh, go on to have a fashion blog. 
Oh well, whatever the case, uh, this is usually cited as their first modern appearance. And they both seem more interested in finding out if Millie the model showed up to the event than the actual event itself. Off to the side, a merry Marvel marcher cries out for Irving Forbush. Elsewhere, again, the puppet master is hanging out in the crowd, clutching onto one of his magic dolls. When suddenly, the spitting image of said doll begins to saunter toward the building. Now, Ben thinks it's a VIP due to his fancy schmancy dress, but... Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. know better. You see, they've been scanning all the attendees and found out that this dude was being controlled by another dude. And it's pretty hilarious here. We got this poor, dapperly-dressed gent. He's being mind-controlled, right? And S.H.I.E.L.D. still dogpiles and karate chops the living hell out of him for being mind-controlled. For whatever reason, this happens to shock the Puppet Master out of his own bout of being mind-controlled. And with his wits about him, he flees the scene. A handy editor's footnote claims that he was being controlled by Dr. Doom. And, of course, you know, the fellow we saw two pages ago tinkering with a machine set to control all the bad guys, so I guess we're just connecting dots here. Now, as he flees, he runs right past... Ugh. The Red Ghost and his super apes. My my favorites. Uh, We cut back to Ben Grimm, who's inside the luxurious lobby of the Baxter Building, and there he meets Professor X. You know, that guy that nobody's supposed to know is associated with the X-Men, but is always seen with the X-Men in public? Huh. Now, Ben can't shake the feeling that they're in danger, and Xavier's mutant mind all but confirms this. When, at that very moment, a drill whirs into the lobby from below. So I guess the Baxter building, much like the Alamo, has no basement. From the hole springs the Mole Man, and a gaggle of moloids. Xavier calls the X-Men into action... Jean rushes in and teleport kinetically raises the Mole Man up, since that's basically her one and only move around now. Cyclops then optic blasts the bejesus out of the Moloids, knocking them right back into their hole. There, Warren and Hank repeatedly stomp on them as though they were trying to jam toothpaste back into the tube. Then, Iceman absolutely fills this hole with ice, right? You know, just like he should have done with Juggernaut last episode, instead of just throwing like a a pumpkin-sized ice chunk down the pit. Now, for this, we get the old dig-dug cross-section, like when Juggernaut was underground. Uh, Now, we see these poor moloids, they're just stuck under this absolute berg of ice. Now, Bobby says that it'll keep pushing the moloids further down the pit as it melts, which I'm not sure that's how it works, unless the ice block is actually, you know, actually consists of, like, Drano or Liquid Plumber. Also, it's pretty clear from the art that the moloids are probably dead. (laughs) I mean, it looks... Like a long-abandoned ant farm down there. They're just, like, all akimbo, and they don't even look to be struggling. Um, And good thing this is back in the long ago. Otherwise, Bobby might be getting, you know, ready to head to an all-new, all-different pit himself. Ben then rushes upstairs to warn Reed that there are bad guys popping up all over the place. And once upstairs, he hears Alicia cry out. And so he bursts into the room where she and Sue are getting ready, and there he finds... The super apes. Ugh. Uh, Sue is protecting Alicia in a force field. Uh, Reed and Johnny follow, so Reed must not be all that stitious about seeing his betrothed in her wedding gown before the ceremony. Now, at this point, the Red Ghost shows himself. And uh, check this out. Johnny Storm attempts to set him on fire. Okay, so naturally the ghost is intangible, so it really doesn't matter. But still... The very idea that Johnny's first instinct is to just set the dude on fire is 
kind of weird, right? Not something that we usually stop to think about. Anyway, when all looks hopeless, the room is suddenly bathed in a red light. When it goes back to normal, the baddies are gone. Now, this is thanks to Dr. Doom, who used his amulet to send the commies to a distant netherworld. Which might seem a little bit extreme. It might also seem a little bit easy, too. Eh? Like, why, ne- why don't they just have Doctor Strange standing outside the church all day long, sending bad guys to the nether realms? It you know, stands to reason that he could do it. Anyway, Reed declares that from this point on, they're going to be on alert. Oh, you don't say. From here, we get a montage of uh, bad guys arriving, and among them are the Mandarin, the Black Knight, Kang in the future, which is helpful, um, the awesome android, the Grey Gargoyle. Uh, We also see Thor approaching the Baxter building, but he is quickly taken out by the Super Scroll. Now, as Thor hangs from a building, he hurls Mjolnir at the Super Scroll ship, which smashes it to bits. This big boom gets the FF's attention, and so Johnny flies out to check out what the hubbub's all about. Back inside, Reed asks his lawyer, Matt Murdock, to announce to the guests that there'll be a slight delay in starting the ceremony. And does that responsibility really fall to the family lawyer? Oh, well, it, it's a moot point anyway, because Matt just passes the buck over to Foggy Nelson and Karen Page. And before we know it, Daredevil is in the thick of the action right outside. Where wouldn't you know it... There's a pickup truck full of Hydra agents about to kamikaze themselves. They're going to literally drive straight into the Baxter building with a Vortex bomb in tow. I think I would prefer a Vartox bomb, but uh, what are you going to do? A Daredevil, he's able to shake all the bad guys, and the blind man commandeers the rig. So he is uh, behind the wheel right now. Elsewhere, Captain America, Iron Man, and Quicksilver are taking care of business. Uh, Wanda doesn't show up. Maybe she didn't get an invite. Now, Cap finds himself encoiled by the Cobra, who looks like a crazy contortionist pervert the way that he's wrapped around the big man. Then, the Executioner and Chantress show up to, I don't know, punch things, I guess? Off to the side, uh, Mr. Hyde kind of just leers at everyone like a creep, but then he gets gimmick-arrowed into the wall by Hawkeye. Then, the Enchantress uses her uh, hex powers to cause a safe to fall on Hawkeye's head, I don't know if there was just a safe hovering above a building or off to the side of a building, but uh, we shouldn't think about it. Anyway, it's a moot point anyway, because fortunately for Hawkeye, Spider-Man was swinging by, and he snagged the safe before it could splatter the archer all over the road. A few blocks away, the Black Knight gets into some aerial combat with Angel, so it is uh, X-related again, briefly. Warren is able to hold his own and even outperform the baddie until the Mandarin fires a ring shot into his back. Warren goes limp and begins to plummet. Lucky for him, Iceman and Beast are there to catch him. And now here, my friends, is the page where Jack Kirby just stopped giving a crap. Uh, He must have been exhausted because uh, what's to follow is pretty rough stuff. Now, the combined forces of Electro, Mandarin, Unicorn, Melter, and the Beetle, they all blast the bejesus out of Iceman. Which, you know, should probably, at the very least, leave a mark. It, It does not. Then Cyclops rushes in to blast the baddies back, which seems like we're overselling Sykes' powers just a tad here. Anyway, from here, we're in full-on Merry Marvel Battle Royal mode here. It's a real who's who, and uh, probably an absolute treat for Merry Marvel Marches of the Day. Now we cut away to see Iron Man fight the awesome android and the Mad Thinker. 
Then, Quicksilver takes on the human top in a battle to see who can save Jack Kirby the most time by just having to draw speed lines. Then, from out of the sea rises Atuma and his entire legion of boring undersea creeps. An editor's note makes sure to mention that we won't be seeing Namor here since he's busy on a fantastic quest in Tales to Astonish number 72. Could you imagine a comics editor actually caring about that sort of thing nowadays? Boy. Now, you'll remember a few pages ago where Daredevil, a blind man, was driving that vortex bomb around New York City? Well, he's still doing that, and he somehow knows that he's nearing the docks because he drives the sucker right into the drink. Uh, This smashes into Atuma's army, or I guess maybe that would be the Navy, I don't know. Whatever the case, Atuma is taken out. Uh, Matt does bail before the, uh, the rig goes over the docks here. On the waterfront, the heroes and villains continue bouncing off one another. And hey, Kang is here. From the future. (laughs) How about that? Uh, Reed wishes to himself that the good guys had the power of the Hulk on their side, which prompts another editor's note, explaining that the Hulk is incommunicado due to his current exploits also in Tales to Astonish number 72. I absolutely love it. We need more of this in comics, but uh, I uh, I think that truck's already driven off the dock. Just then, Baby New Year arrives. Well, it's the Watcher, but uh, boy, was he even weirder looking back in the Silver Age or what? Now, he snaps Reed up to take him to the fourth dimension where he might be able to find the key to his victory. And they fly through a photograph of whatever the fourth dimension is, which looks like a creepy collage of weirdness. And I think there's like an Easter Island Moai head here uh, being struck by lightning and particles everywhere. I really haven't the foggiest what we're looking at. I think there's a solar eclipse here in the background. Whatever it is, it's odd, and it's supposed to be. Anyway, Reed and the Watcher arrive at the Watcher's Citadel. The Watcher uses a technicality here, like he usually does. He tells Reed that the answer to his woes is here, and how, as the Watcher, he can't interfere if he decides to take it and use it. So, uh, real sneaky, sis, just uh, like the Watcher always does. Now, Reed finds a very stupid-looking machine, and he heads home with it. Now, while the battle royale rages, Reed takes his time setting up this gimmick. Once operational, it zaps the bad guys, and they vanish. Now, you see, it was a subatronic time displacer. It sends the baddies back in time, briefly, you know, shortly back in time, without any memory of what happened that day. Reed then faints, or swoons, or whatever. I don't know why. I mean, the machine did all the work. He flipped a switch. Whatever the case, the day is saved and the subatronic gimmick vanishes back to the Watcher's Citadel. From here, we finally get to the ceremony. Reed and Sue are married, surrounded by their closest pals and superhero peers. Nick Fury lovingly stares at us, the readers, with his one good eye. It's literally like he's making love to the camera, and it's kind of gross. It makes me very uncomfortable having Nick Fury look at us that way. And we close out the issue, or the story anyway, with Stan and Jack attempting to crash the wedding... But Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. tell him to hit the bricks. That was Fantastic Four Annual number three. Uh, Next time out, we will be taking a look, or we'll be kicking off a three-part storyline, our first ever three-parter, and this will be featuring uh, the Sentinels, Bolivar Trask, Master Mold. It's going to be a good time. Now, we don't have a back-in-the-day letters page here. This isn't, you know, an issue of X-Men, so I don't really worry about those here. So let's just get into some thoughts about this issue. A very, very important issue, and uh, one that, boy, I mean, I talk about how long it's been since I've read some of these Silver Age stories, and, you know, this one felt 
almost completely brand new to me because it's been so long since I've read it. Uh, it it's weird. You can't really... I think a current year reader, like a, or a more contemporary reader, even a reader that's been around for as long as I have since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, can't really appreciate this book for what it is. And, I mean, what it is is, like, the biggest indication yet that uh, all of these heroes occupy the same space. Sure, we've had uh, crossovers, we've had uh, guest spots and cameos, but uh, this was the first time that we see pretty much everyone minus Hulk and Submariner, who still get mentioned, uh, just at the same place at the same time. That novelty is certainly uh, long gone at this point, where, I mean, I've mentioned this before as part of the reason why I stopped reading so many Marvel books. Uh, there was just too much, uh, basically too much Avengers, too much S.H.I.E.L.D. taking over every single book, and I, I understand. I mean, billion-dollar movies, it, it totally makes sense that they would do that. Um, I just don't have to like it, I guess. Uh, I always cite, like, X, Uncanny X-Men number one, one of the six or seven that we've had over the past five or six years. Um, I always cite this as, you know, my first indication that uh, the novelty of this sort of thing is worn off, where... We launch a volume of Uncanny X-Men that started with like five or six pages of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Maria Hill. It's like, this maybe went a little too far. But um, here in 1965, when the Marvel Universe is still in its relative infancy, to see all these characters together, I mean, why wouldn't you buy this issue? Just knowing that all the characters are going to be there. Uh, Stan has been hyping it up left, right, and center throughout uh, so many of the uh, you know proto-bullpen bulletins pages, really just uh, getting the word out that this is a big event. And in execution, it was very well done. I mean, it's a silly story, right? Of course it's a silly story. It is a Silver Age story predicated on, you know, an emotion engine or whatever it was. But that said, um, it facilitates not only a whole bunch of hero cameos, but basically all the heavy hitters of the bad side as well. Naturally, we, we don't get Magneto because they still cared about continuity back then, and uh, we knew that Magneto was off with the stranger doing whatever the hell he was doing, but it was still very cool to see all the bad guys together. Uh, I do wish that uh, Doctor Doom maybe did a little bit more in person rather than just opening the story and uh, pushing a button on his emotion thing. <laughs> I thought it would be uh, pretty neat to have him show up. And it's interesting not to... Uh, get too far off the rails here and talk about, uh, you try to compare this to how it would be portrayed nowadays, as I don't want to fall into that trap, but I feel like, had this story been told today, it would be a lot less action-heavy, a lot more, uh, a lot more heavy on the talking and the interpersonals, which, nothing wrong with that, I think, uh, that's definitely got a place in comics, and I usually quite enjoy it, uh, when it's not, when it's not just, you know, uh, 20 odd pages of uh, nine panel grids of static talking heads. I think the perfect way to present this would be somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, you have the talking heads, you also have action. Just something not too far on either end of the fighty talky spectrum, right? But what else we got to say here? Um, let's talk about the X Men's involvement. Uh, they don't get all that much paginal real estate here, but they got more than I thought they would. It's uh, really, really interesting to see how. Uh, I mean, we think about the X-Men back in the day and how I think the revisionist history is that uh, nobody read the book. Nobody cared about these characters, you know? They were just kind of a failed attempt until Giant Size hit and uh, everything went topsy-turvy. But we can see here that they were quite uh, 
quite prominent in the Marvel Universe here. I think outside of the Fantastic Four, actually even including the Fantastic Four, the X-Men might have gotten the most panel time of any of the Marvel properties here, at least as far as the action bits are concerned. So it was really cool to see so much of them. What was weird is that uh, Spider-Man gets one panel. (laughs) He only gets one panel saving Hawkeye from a falling safe. That seems very bizarre. I thought they'd have uh, Spider-Man more prominently placed throughout this book. And hey, maybe that's just residual from uh, that complaint letter (laughs) that we got a few episodes back where someone thought that Jack drew Spider-Man and said that uh, he needs to tighten up his work on Spider-Man. So maybe this was Jack's way of saying, you know, screw you, (laughs) you're not getting Spider-Man. What else? What else? Uh, The Watcher. Pretty anticlimactic, right? Um, Just a literal deus ex machina, right? Just here, here's the thing that'll fix everything, and you push a button and everything's fixed. And they even erase the fact that the villains got involved at all in order not to mar the uh, wedding day of Reed and Sue. So, eh, they probably could have come up with something cooler and more creative than that, but... uh, what are you going to do? It is what it is. Uh, finally, um, how about we talk a little bit about the art here, and not talking about that psychedelic fourth dimension page, which was kind of a trip. Um, it always makes me feel uneasy when they put those in the books here, because it just it just feels so weird. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's so, um, like, primitive <laughs> in a way, since the technology isn't, you know, wasn't what it is now, or even wasn't, wasn't what it would become just, you know, a handful of years later. So it feels very kind of slapdash, but it's charming in a way, but ultimately just makes me feel kind of uneasy. But the art I want to talk about is kind of the tale of two pencils we have here. Um, The first half of the issue is very, very strong Kirby. And then, as I mentioned during the synopsis, we get to that one page where uh, I believe it was when Angel was knocked out of the sky by the Mandarin. Everything gets a little sketchy. And granted, I mean... We've mentioned this every episode. Jack draws like a hundred and something pages a month, and here this is an extra-sized book, so maybe he maybe he phoned it in. Maybe he phoned in the uh, the latter third of the issue. And I mean, it's not awful to look at, but it's certainly it's certainly lacking. But overall, uh, I'd say that this is probably a must-read for any fans of uh, actually any Marvel comics. I was going to say Marvel comics of the day, but no, this is. This is a seminal issue in the formation and the establishment of the shared Marvel Universe, and I think any Marvel fan really ought to check it out. I mean, don't go into it with huge expectations here, because, I mean, it is still a silly Silver Age story, and uh, it's not wildly deep. <laughs> it's very fan servicey, but that's kind of the point, right? I think this is definitely one you should check out, and you'd probably do best to try to put yourself in the shoes of a reader of the day, since, uh, as mentioned several times throughout this episode, the novelty of seeing all these characters together, that's just not a thing anymore. But if we try to put ourselves as fake-ass comics historians into some fake-ass comics history, and uh, consider what this might look like to a reader of the day, a kid who maybe can't afford all the comics, and then buys the one where they all show up, I think that... uh, will help to illustrate how important this uh, this issue was in its day and even to this very day as well. So check it out. It is on Marvel Unlimited. The The first story's there. I mean, the other two are reprints, which you can also get on Unlimited if you uh, so desire. But that's how I read it, and I quite enjoyed it, and I think you all will as well. Now let's hop into the mailbag before we cut out of here. We got one letter from our friend Billy D. 
He's talking about the Juggernaut story we just covered, and he says, I love Juggy and the backstory here. The animated show, or was it Spider-Man and his amazing friends, did a decent job showing this relationship for the horror show it was and is. These letters columns, oy vey, some of these people need to get a grip. I also get the feeling that some of these letters may be written by someone in the office, as they're so crazy, it's all but unbelievable to me that some regular folks would write them. I tell you, every time I hear about uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, I always want to try it out again. I, I only watched a little bit of it and never really, never really got into it. Uh, but I keep hearing like little bits like this here, uh, to see the Juggernaut and Professor X's story being told in a, in a Spider-Man cartoon. That sounds, that sounds interesting. I might, have to, I might have to look into that. Maybe we'll uh, do another animation special somewhere down the line, just uh, taking a look at that, since uh, I've, never, I've never seen it. Um, now, the letter columns, yes. <laughs> These folks are out there. You know, it's funny, because like, I think about comic fans today and how... I think it's just, actually, you know, anybody, any fan of any kind of media today, uh, I think we all try to present ourselves as being the smartest person in the room. You know, when, when the topics that we are passionate about come up, it's like, we try to point out things, we try to out-obscure one another, you know? It's like, well, you think that's good, how about this? And here we have these letter writers of 1965 who preface with what their, uh, what their passions are, like, I, I'm into... I'm into dinosaurs, and you got all the dinosaurs wrong. And I'm into psychology, and you got this wrong. Or I read this one thing by Darwin, and you have evolution wrong. And these aren't really mutations. This, they're this instead. It's so crazy that these folks actually exert the effort to write in and take poor Stanley to task for inaccuracies, scientific inaccuracies, in a book where we have a guy with wings, a guy with... Uh, you know, lasers coming out of his eyes, a guy who could turn into ice. <laughs> I mean, where, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line here? Um, uh, Billy wraps up with, anyway, keep plugging away. Things are bound to get better. The Roy and Adams work is definitely a step up from this era, for the most part. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite enjoying this. For as silly as uh, these stories are, they, they have such uh, charm and heart to them that even though the letter writers of the day think that uh, Stan and Jack aren't artists, you know, um, it's still so much fun to revisit these old stories here and uh, actually do it with, like, an eye towards analysis and seeing where things go and, and having fun with uh, some of the silliness and the wonkiness uh, without fear of uh, reprisals or being told that I hate everything. So uh, thank you so much, Billy. And uh, actually, Billy sent in another message to help clear me up on a couple of the things that we looked at in the uh, letters page or the Mighty Marvel checklist of uh, last episode where we found out that Adam Austin was going to be taking over one of the books here, and I mentioned uh, that I have no idea who Adam Austin is. Well, it turns out I do know who Adam Austin is. Adam Austin was actually the pen name for Gene Colan, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll talk a little bit about why so many of these creators used pen names. Like, we have Warner Roth here as, uh, as Jay Gavin. It had to do with uh, where they were working <laughs> at the time. It's a very... It's kind of interesting, only in that it uh, shows what a different world it was back in the day. So uh, maybe I'll throw some notes together for that, and we can discuss that in a uh, later episode. He also fills me in on exactly what a Bull McGivney is. And if you remember, Bull McGivney was uh, part of the Sergeant Fury blurb, and Billy says that McGivney was the antithesis to Fury. 
he led another squad of army toughs in the Howling Commandos books. So thank you so much for both of those pieces of information, as well as uh, listening and writing in. It really means so very much. So thanks again. And uh, if anybody out there would like to be part of the show and write in, give me your thoughts on, uh, well, whatever you'd like, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call and leave a message at the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And finally, for the Chris and Reggie audio archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available anywhere you find noise and or sound and or screeching on the internet. But that will do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for joining me on this blessed occasion of the wedding of Reed and Sue. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 21 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where we're going to be kicking off a three-part story. Uh, just a little bit ago, we finished up a two-parter with the Juggernaut. Today, we start a three-parter with the Sentinels. And, uh, boy, this issue feels very, very long, so we probably should just hop right in. Uh, this is X-Men number 14. Had a November 1965 cover date. The story is called Among Us Stalk, The Sentinels. Written and edited by Stan Lee, layouts Jack Kirby, pencils Werner Roth as Jay Gavin, inks Vince Coletta, letters Artie Simic, colors probably a sentient pile of crayons, markers, and colored pencils, cover price 12 cents, and now 
X-Men is monthly. So uh, every single month we're going to be getting an issue of X-Men for, uh, well, for a little while. So let's open this one up here. Uh, we actually open right in the aftermath of the Juggernaut attack that we discussed, you know, a couple episodes ago. And uh, the male X-Men are all engaging in a bit of rehab. Angel's hanging from the ceiling in full traction. Cyclops is wearing a Big Daddy helmet from Bioshock. Beast is walking on crutches, and Kid Cool is sitting inside a giant ice cube. Now, it's worth noting here that uh, Scott claims to have been worried that Juggernaut caused him to strain his cursed optic blast to the point beyond repair. And, well, uh, I mean, hasn't he been in the market to deep six those cursed powers anyway? Like, shouldn't he been hoping for that? Also, a Beast says that he feels just as vulnerable as a plain old homo sapien. And Xavier warns not to be cocky about mutant superiority. And uh, I figure we will save that kind of talk for 2019 on. Xavier looks at a clipboard and decides, Yep, the fellas are all healed up. And they can be taken out of their emergency therapy gimmicks. So Warren can remove his harness and try flying again. Beast can drop the crutches and get back to trapezing all over the place. Bobby can come in from out of the cold, though he's a bit reluctant to do so. He just loves sitting in a giant ice cube. Um, maybe that's why it's his go-to move every time an evil mutant attacks? Huh? Uh, Xavier warns that he, if he were to remain any longer in the ice cube, he will suffer freeze feedback. And I think that's uh, what happens when you sip a Slurpee too quickly. The professor then announces that he's got a big surprise for his teenage charges. You see, after all their hard work... He's sending them on vacation. Now Cyclops lifts his diving helmet to cheer, and this might be the first genuine smile we've ever seen on his face yet. Our scene shifts to a small press conference taking place somewhere in the city. There, a man named Bolivar Trask, one of the world's leading anthropologists, has a declaration that threatens to shake Krakoa to its very... I mean, wait, wrong show. Uh, He just has a plain old announcement that will shock the world. You see, it's time... It's time for some fear and hate to seep back into these books. Trask warns that mutants are a menace just waiting to strike. They're mankind's most deadly enemy, and they must be taken down before they gain any more power. And I wonder what Trask would think of uh, the uh, Hoxpox era here. And so, the Lemming reporters take Trask's word for it, plain as day, and the next day's front-page news is all about the mutant menace. So, uh, fact-checking, be damned. It's worth noting that the newspaper we see is the Daily Globe. And I gotta ask, just who in the hell is handling distribution for the Bugle around now? Nobody's reading the damn thing. Anyway, back to Xavier's. We see Bobby helping Warren pin down his wings. Huh. Well, that's a familiar scene to some of us, isn't it? It's the same exact scene that they plucked to stuff into Marvel's Voices Pride special, which we covered in episode 226 of the main show. So I guess we already know the ending here. This story is going to end with Magneto about to strike the mansion with missiles, right? Well, no, of course not, because Magneto is off with the stranger, and whoever wrote that story just flipped through these early Silver Agers long enough to find Bobby touching Warren, context be damned. Anyway, Warren reveals that his wings didn't sprout till he went to military school, which was how he was able to hide them from his parents, which uh, answers a question from a letters page not too long ago. Now, he's heading home to be with his folks for his vacation, so uh, I guess he's got to keep it on the down low. Over in Cyclops' room, he prepares to change out of his visor and into his ruby quartz shades. For some reason, though, he has to open his visor before removing it? 
I'm not sure what the gimmick here is, but uh, the ruby glass like rolls up, revealing his closed peepers. And I'm guessing this is just answering another thing from the letters pages, just to show us how they work. Uh, it just seems like an extra step to me, you know, yanking off a head sock and slapping on a pair of glasses, but uh, what do I know? Next, to Hank, who is slipping on his gimmicked booties and foot girdles. Then, during Stanley's second favorite time elapsement later, moments later, the kids are ready to skidoo. Now, Scott is saddened to learn that Gene will be getting a ride to the train station from Warren. Gene invites Scott to come along with them, but alas, Warren's hoopty only seats two, and that's by design. Now, Scott, he acts all aloof here, claiming that he's taking a later, later train anyway, so it doesn't matter. Then to the foyer, where the kids ask Professor X where he'll go for his vacation, to which he reminds them all that the Xavier Mansion is, you know, Xavier's house. I mean, go figure, right? So he'll be staying here. The gang lets him know that they're just a psychic call away, and I don't know if this means that Xavier will have to wear his Mento helmet, or have we already forgotten about that? I don't know. So, Warren and Gene leave first, then Bobby and Hank, finally Scott. Now, Xavier watches Scott walk into the horizon and is saddened by his field leader's crippling loneliness. Now, once the kids are gone, Xavier looks at today's edition of the Daily Globe, and, well, duh, it's all about the mutant menace. And there's a pretty iconic image in the paper of a mutant overlord, like, whipping humans and forcing them into slavery. And we would see this imagery a few times over the years, uh, notably in some of Quentin Quire's earliest appearances during the uh, Morrison run. Now, the newspaper also includes artist renditions of mutant leaders and humans forced into gladiatorial sport. Xavier thinks to himself that he cannot let this misinformation get out uncontested. And so, he calls a local television station to challenge Bolivar Trash to a public and televised debate. And the station immediately promises to arrange everything. Which... It's a little bit simple, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't they see if Trask is even interested first? Oh well. Well then, lickety-split. Xavier and Trask are on a televised panel show, preparing to have their back and forth on the mutant menace. And, you know, for a dude who doesn't want people to know he's a mutant, he sure makes a lot of public appearances with and for the mutants. Plus, I mean, you know, his last name is Xavier. The leading mutant hero team is called the X-Men. The X-Men's helicopter is seen taking off and landing from his backyard. Bobby and Scott once hitched a ride on an ice cream truck to the mansion's front door. I could go on, but nah. Um, in any event, he is introduced as an articulate spokesman for America's intellectual community, which is something I'm going to immediately add to my business card. Anyway, Xavier makes his plea that mutants aren't to be hated nor feared. They're just different. And we see some reactions from TV land. We see a teenage girl who thinks it would be really groovy if the old creepy bald dude was a mutant himself. So I guess, uh, you know, out of the mouths of babes. And then some uninformed types assume that uh, Xavier must be a pinko commie or something. Next, it's Trask's turn to rebut, right? And, you know, rather than just standing up and saying, <clears throat> Magneto, as proof that mutants are to be feared and hated, he makes the crazy eyes at the camera and starts brandishing a remote control. Because, you see, he's about to introduce the world to... The Sentinels. Now, to prove how effective they are at restraining mutants, Trask decides to pretend that Charles Xavier himself is a mutant. And so a Sentinel enters through the curtain and places hands on the prof. The moderator for the debate is just absolutely gobsmacked. He's somehow shocked that there are like a dozen 12-foot-tall, gaudy-as-hell robots in his backstage area. 
Like he really didn't notice this? They're, they're kind of hard to miss. Anyway, Trask then walks over to his robots and goes to demonstrate how they respond to his every command. And then, well, a sentinel blasts him with its beam. Um, it's not quite as graphic or as iconic as the cover of Uncanny 142, but it's in that vein. Xavier's not at all surprised by this turn of events. After all, Trask is an anthropologist and not a robotics expert. He then calls a red alert for the X-Men to assemble, and it makes me wonder, are there other colored alerts? Like, is there a purple alert? A gold alert? I mean, so far, all we've seen is red. Anyway, we should probably go fetch the kids, right? So let's do that thing here. First, we're going to go to Bobby and Hank, who are spending their vacation at the Coffee A Go-Go. That's, I mean, they go there often. I don't know. Okay. Uh, Hank is especially troubled because Bernard the Poet is starting to make sense to him. So I guess the LSD finally kicked in. Now let's see if you can all understand Bernie the P here. He says, like it's out to be in and it's square to be hip. I mean, dig that scene, a nap isn't a nip. And I can confirm that a nip and a nap are two different things, but that's about as far as I can go. Anyway, the professor's mento-helmetless psychic call is answered, and the fellas jam out. Unfortunately for Bobby, this means walking out on the lovely Zelda, who actually doesn't look like a gangster in a wig since Kirby's not penciling her, so that's a good thing. The guys change into their X-Togs, and Bobby even pulls on his little booties, and they ice slide toward the station. Next, we're off to Long Island's affluent North Shore at Worthington Manor. And I lived on the South Shore, which was, uh, well, besides my family, pretty affluent as well back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Warren gets the psychic call and excuses himself. His parents are both very understanding, uh, because he claims that he forgot something back at the school. They say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll always be there to support you, and whatever you need, just ask. So, uh, pretty sweet. Anyway, Warren leaves and takes to the sky. Back to the TV station, a group of Sentinels have snatched Bolivar up, and they head back to wherever it is that Sentinels live. Don't worry, we will see the place soon enough. Uh, it looks like two Sentinels, but then it looks like just one. <laughs> it changes over the course of the next few pages. Uh, remain at the station. It looks like two, it looks like one, who knows. Uh, they, or it, holds the whole place hostage. Now, Xavier engages in some mental manipulation to keep the studio audience from panicking and making the situation so much worse. Just then, Bobby and Hank arrive, possibly to make the situation so much worse. A beast bounces off the Sentinel's head and deftly dodges some lasers. Iceman makes the floor all slippery, causing the Sentinel to slam to the ground. Xavier fills Kid Cool in on what these Sentinels are all about, but this causes enough of a distraction that neither man noticed that the Sentinel already pulled itself back up to its feet and blasted Bobby with a bolt of heat. I could be Bernard the Poet. Meanwhile, Scott Summers is in a yellow cab, hightailing it to the studio, when suddenly, whoops, his ruby court shades spontaneously fall off his face, causing an optic blast to blow out the cabbie's windshield. Scott reaffixes his glasses and flees the scene. Unfortunately for him, an angry mob saw this whole thing play out and are hot on his trail, just seething with fear and hate. Scott manages to lose them right outside the TV studio and rushes inside. While climbing a flight of stairs, he changes into his X-Togs and arrives at the field of battle, just in time to narrowly miss a sentinel fist. And, uh, you know, talk about wonky perspective here. This is one huge, huge fist for a relatively small sentinel. This is like, this is like 1980s, 1990s era sentinel-sized fist here, but uh, I don't know. 
Now, I know we're all about suspension of disbelief, yes? But now knowing that the TV studio was up a flight of stairs, because Cyclops did have to go up a flight of stairs at least one, just how in the hell did Trask get the Sentinels in without anyone noticing? I mean, they had to literally go upstairs. I, I don't know. Anyway, the battle continues with Beast jumping headfirst into a wall. Like, really, he torpedoes himself, headbutting the ever-loving hell out of a wall. Naturally, he's KO'd. Then, when all looks lost, the Sentinel begins to seize up and collapses. At this point, Xavier releases the audience from his mental control and informs everyone that the X-Men have saved the day. He then thinks to himself that he's got to get to the bottom of why this big old bot seized up on itself. Meanwhile, Angel is still flying toward the studio and happens across a swarm of sentinels. The swarm of sentinels, in fact. And he immediately realizes that they must be the reason for Xavier's red alert. Now, as you might imagine, the sentinels recognize Warren as a mutant and they go on the attack. Thankfully, Warren's only danger room exercise is avoiding blasts, and his only weakness is flying into nets, so he's pretty safe here. No nets, so it's good. He is then yanked downward, where he slams back first on a passing train. And, I mean, dude dropped probably ten stories, like a stone, right? And it looks like he hit pretty hard. The Sentinels, they might be part ostrich, uh, because they've already forgotten about him, and they continue on their merry way. Turns out that Warren was yanked to the train because Jean Grey TK'd him down there from inside the thing. Okay. Jean then flies for the very first time to greet him. Back to the studio, Xavier and the ex-fellas are surrounding the fallen sentinel, looking kind of like guys who pretend to know what they're looking at under the hood of, hood of their car, you know? And the teens talk here a lot. I mean, there are more words in this panel than in many current year issues altogether. Xavier finally tells them all to shut up at their faces because, get this, he is getting mental images from this robot. Yeah, really, and Xavier himself can't even believe it, so I guess, uh, I guess that excuses it. From this, he's able to deduce the Sentinel's headquarters. Oh, and also Warren and Jean, they finally show up now. Xavier tells the assembled team that the key to this whole Michigas might be hidden behind the words Master Mold. You see, Master Mold is the only thought in the dead Sentinel's head. From here, we rejoin the Sentinels, wherever the hell they're hiding out. We will find out soon. Trask orders them to release him, to which they remind him that they don't take orders anymore. They then shove him into the Master Chamber so that he can create more of them. Now, he refuses, but I don't think they're listening. Now, the Master Chamber is not the Master Mold that we know. This is like a, uh, like a giant version of one of those static electricity globe things that you would touch at the museum during a field trip at school that makes your hair stand up on end. So this isn't the Master Mold, this is just the Master Chamber. We will meet the Master Mold next time. Now Trask pleads, claiming that he's friends with the Sentinels. But alas, Sentinels are robots and they've got no need for friends. Then something pings on the Sentinels' radar. There's a certain Rolls-Royce headed their way. Of course, it's the X-Men, who have to uh, stop everything to get Xavier's wheelchair out of the trunk before they can act, which is a, uh, it's an interesting attention to detail. Not something that you'd uh, usually see given any panel time, so it's neat to see it. It's still, it still kind of like takes you out of the story a little bit. Just then, from the vacant field they arrived at, rises a secret fortress that immediately begins blasting at them. Where did all these lasers come from back in the Silver Age? I mean, it's just insane. Maybe we'll find out next time. 
No, no, we totally won't. But that is where we end this issue, part one of three of the opening Sentinel Salvo saga. Next episode, we'll do part two, but right now, let's hop into the letters page here. These are always a a fun time here. We're going to start with Mike in California, and Mike, well, he's got some gripes. And he's numbered them, which is great. One, the X-Men rely on Professor X too much. Uh, and they've also built up this don't harm a human thing, which, uh, well, Mike, if you were still reading in uh, 2019, I, I wonder what you thought. Um, he also suggests that Xavier could have altered the Mandarin's mind. Did we miss an issue where the X-Men fought the Mandarin? Eh, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, over-relying on Professor X is, uh, that's just kind of the way these books went back in the day, isn't it? Uh, the X-Men would do whatever they could, they'd get beaten, and then Professor X would come in and uh, do something mentally spectacular. It's uh, kind of a trope at this point. Mike's gripe number two, the costumes suck! He says they're about as interesting as a carton of eggs, and worth noting, Mike also hates the Fantastic Four's costumes. He hates so many things. What is he, me? <clears throat> Rumor has it. Uh, three... He wants to see a romance between Gene and Scott. Four, stop cluttering the covers of Marvel mags with, quote, a lot of garbage about how great you guys are. He suggests that Stan is so egotistical that he may as well just put photos of his head on the cover. And, uh, I mean, don't give him any ideas here. Uh, Stan basically ignores the entirety of this letter, except for the last bit. And he replies that last issue's cover of the Juggernaut was actually a photo of Artie Simic. So a perfect... Perfect Stan reply. Next, John in New Mexico also has gripes. He's tired of Stan blowing hot air about how great Marvel is. He uh, says that Brand X Comics, you know, DC, National, they're pretty good as well, so check yourself, Stan. John does not like continuing stories. One and done only, please, since Marvel mags sell out so quickly at the newsstand. And, uh, John, you are not going to like the direction of the industry over the next half century, I tell you what. Now, Stan tells Jolly John to, uh, maybe get your ass to the newsstand before the mags sell out. And he tells him to practice his sprinting over the next month so he can beat the other geeks to the racks. Another perfect Stan reply here, and, uh, addresses something that I mentioned, uh, I believe, last episode or the episode before that about, uh, the continuing story. And how, uh... To me, that's something of a comfort food, but to the fans of the day, that's just a, uh, a frustration, right? You get to something with a, with a very, very clear and blatant to-be-continued at the end of it, and you're just like, crap, am I going to be able to get part two? Or you pick up something that is definitely picking up from a story that has already started, and you missed it. You know, I, I can totally understand their frustration. Next, Norman in NYC. He thinks that X-Men number 12 was the greatest story he's ever read. But he wonders why Doctor Strange didn't get involved with all the Sidorakian hoodoo going on. And Stan says that the good Doctor was busy taking on Baron Mordo over in Strange Tales, and uh, maybe you ought to read that. Jerry in Oklahoma. Now, he was very disappointed in X-Men number 12 because he hated Alex Toth's artwork, which was a... which is a weird uh, take. I thought it was very good, and um, certainly a step up from Jack Kirby kind of phoning it in over a few issues there where he was clearly overworked, or clearly through my um, projecting eyes, <laughs> overworked by his, uh, you know, his bundle of pages here. Now, Jerry suggests uh, maybe tossing Dick Ayers on S.H.I.E.L.D. so that Jack has more time for the X-Men. 
Now Stan explains that they're juggling artists around right now trying to find their best fit, and he asks Jerry how he liked Jay Gavin's work on this issue. So maybe, maybe Jerry will write in again and we'll find out. Next up, Roger in Massachusetts. He asks, does the angel molt? And I mean, I've already gone down this tropey lane before, but picture it. Okay, Roger, he took out his stationery and pen, probably his Merry Marvel Marching Society stationery. He scrawled this question down, folded the paper in three, carefully placed it in an envelope, wrote Marvel's address on said envelope, licked and affixed a stamp to the right-hand corner of the envelope, walked to a mailbox, dropped the letter inside, all to ask this stupid question. Boy. Uh, Stan says that he'll ask the angel just as soon as he's done pecking at his breakfast birdseed. So, another perfect Stan answer. Next up, Bill in California. He loves, loves the X-Men. He wants to know if the angel's wings are really attached to his body. He'd like to see Cyclops enjoy life more. And he comments that some letter hacks want Professor X out of the book, but he wants him to stick around. He likes the X-Men's costumes, and he wants to see them goofing around more. So, uh, hey, you asked for it, Raj. Uh, more coffee-a-go-go for you. Um, now, Stan says that he'll watch some Three Stooges films for ideas, so uh, they're uh, going to be goofing around some more. And also, the angel's wings are real, and we did see evidence of that right here in today's issue. Next up, Donald in Ohio, and he's, uh, he's got some very odd stats here to, uh, to give us. Um, he says that the Juggernaut is twice as strong as the Hulk, and twice as invulnerable, so he doesn't want to see the Hulk ever referred to again as the most powerful being on Earth. I'm, I'm not sure where he's getting his data. Uh, was there like a Marvel trading card set with power rankings back in 1965 that I don't know about? Was there an Ohatmu back in 1965 with power rankings? I, I don't know. Well, Stan replies that old Juggy just bit the dust, so it's a moot point. And uh, I guess that's confirmation that Xavier killed his stepbrother in issue uh, 13 there. So, how about that? Next up, we have Peter in New York. He loved issue 12, and he wants to see an X-Men t-shirt. And indeed, there is a picture of an X-Men t-shirt in this very issue. Now, he asks why Cerebro reacted to the Juggernaut, which is a great question that we've asked a few times already. He also claims that the X-Men hit the local newsstand two weeks late, and he threatens to riot if this were to ever happen again. And he'd also like to figure out how to pronounce Sidorak. Now, Stan apologizes for the lateness of the ish, despite it not being his fault at all. He says that Sidorak is pronounced just like Midorak, so that's a good Stan answer. And he refuses to address why Cerebro was able to pick up on the Juggernaut, so uh, I tell ya, I smell a no-prize opportunity. Is anybody going to be able to pick that ball up and run with it? Next up, John in Pennsylvania. He congratulates Stan and Jack on their two-year X-anniversary. And he loves the book so much that he claims it would suck if Jack Kirby stopped drawing it. So this is such a great book that if you were to remove the artist, it would just suck. Uh, He also hates that he has to wait two months for each issue. And of course, with this issue... We're monthly, so he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. Though, Jack Kirby is going to be just doing layouts, so maybe he does have something to worry about. I don't know. Wrapping up with H. Doyle in Illinois. Now, he takes issue with the historians who took issue with Stan and Jack's dinosaur boner back in issue 10. Now, he attempts to no-prize why dinos from desperate eras are all in the savage land. And he really should have just saved his energy here and just said, uh, It's comics. 
you know, but I appreciate his effort, and Stan does too. H. Doyle wants more Kazar, and Stan says he'll think about it. Those are the letters now into some announcements. We got announcements and bullpens here. The bullpens are on their own page, which uh, Stan is very, very proud of. So we will get to that right after the announcements. The big announcement is that X-Men, Daredevil, and Sergeant Fury are now monthly. So every magnificent Marvel mag hits the shelves 12 times a year. There's some news on the Merry Marvel Marching Society, and uh, you can still join up for the cost of... Well, they don't say here, but uh, it will say somewhere else. Uh, You'll get your Marvel stationery, you'll get your X-Men t-shirt. Stan says to... uh, He says to save your shekels. Those are his words, not mine. uh, Because there's going to be a new gizmo coming soon from Marvel. I'm not sure what this gizmo is. Hopefully we'll find out as we continue. And for the next issue of X-Men... Well, Stan doesn't want to spoil the surprise, which is to say he probably doesn't know just yet. I'll bet it has something to do with those gaudy robots, though. Now on to the bullpen bulletins on their own page. We get some announcements here. Joe Sinnott is back at Marvel. Stan also announces that Adam Austin is only a pen name for a famous artist, and they'll reveal who that is soon. And hey, we just discussed that, so how about that? Uh, From here, Stan pimps his magazines, Monsters Unlimited, which we've talked about before. Also something called You Don't Say. Now, You Don't Say is kind of like Monsters Unlimited, as it uses photos with humorous word balloons. Humorous, in quotes. Um, It's satirical American fumetti. And uh, maybe it was funny back in the mid-60s. You could find bits and bobs of this online, so I guess you can be the judge. Though I will say, if the idea of uh, JFK saying silly things makes you giggle, then this mag might be right up your alley. Another announcement. Jack Kirby penciled and inked some pinups in this year's annual, so if you are a fan of the King's work, you got some pinups. They also announced that there are 25 new Merry Marvel marchers, and their names and hometowns are listed below. Uh, None of these names stand out to me. I do wonder if we'll see, like, a future comics pro or someone that uh, we've heard of in these pages somewhere down the line. I I hope so, because that that could be pretty fun. Uh, Finally, Professor X taunts us with a mysterious mailing tube. I wonder if that's the gizmo. Stan says he'll announce what's inside it next issue. Finally, we have the mighty Marvel Checklist. Fantastic Four number 45 has Inhuman stuff. Medusa's origin, Gorgon's grossness. I am bored just from the paragraph here. Spider-Man number 31, the master planner plots against Spidey. Avengers number 22, the Avengers face their first defeat. Daredevil number 10 is touted as a real collector's item, as it features Wally Wood on script. Thor number 122 has the absorbing man taking on Odin himself. Strange Tales 139 features Fury, prisoner of Hydra and also Doctor Strange vs. Baron Mordo. Suspense number 72, uh, Iron Man faces a daringly different threat, whoever that might be, and Cap faces the Sleeper. Astonished 74, Namor gives up his quest, and the Hulk returns to Earth, just a little too late to attend the wedding of Reed and Sue. Last, and, uh, well, your mileage may vary if this is least or not, we got Sergeant Fury number 24, and it features the Howlers on furlough. So with all that said, uh, how about I muddle my way through telling you all how I feel about this issue. The problem with these Silver Age issues is that 
they're a lot of fun, but they're silly. And I feel like that's what I say every single time out. You know, uh, if we had a bingo card, silly would be in one square, fun would be in another. And uh, they would basically always be checked off because these Silver Age stories are both. They're silly they're fun. Something else about these early issues is when Stan wants to focus on the fear and hate angle, it is uh, it's pretty ham-fisted, right? It's usually... Like a turn on a dime sort of thing You don't need any credibility To make people, to like foment The fear and hate Like when the Beast saved that little kid Who was on the water tower back in Issue 8, you know, it's like Just some dude on the streets like He probably planted her there And it's like, oh, hate the mutants, let's get the torches And it was just like, that's how quickly it flipped And here we just have like a Like a little crew of reporters Hanging out with Bolivar Trask As he shows them you know, pencil drawings of big-headed mutants whipping humans into uh, submission and enslavement, and that's all it takes to get a front-page news story. And granted, I was not around in the mid-60s, so I don't know how uh, highly regarded the press was back then. I know I know a lot of folks question what we uh, hear on the news these days, but uh, I wonder if it was the same in 1965, where people were like, eh, maybe this isn't quite legit. Or if they see this in the paper on the front page of the uh, the Globe or whatever the hell it was, and they're just like, uh-oh, mutants are bad. But, of course, these aren't being written to be analyzed by some uh, 40-year-old idiot uh, half-century later. So we keep it simple, take what we get, and uh, and enjoy it for, for what it is. And what it is is a uh, setup issue. We're going to be digging deeper into this over the course of the next couple of episodes here, so... Some of the questions that are raised in this issue will be uh, attended to over the course of the next couple here. Why did that Sentinel collapse at the TV studio? We'll find out all about that. We'll find out about the Master Mold and Trask's uh, final fate, and uh, maybe even a few more things along the way. But um, I think that's all i got to say about the issue. Like I said, it's mostly a setup issue. Um, Had a lot of fun with it. I can't deny that. The art here by uh, our friend J. Gavin Werner-Roth was quite good. Was quite good, but I think that's all I have to say about this issue, and that'll bring us to uh, to our conclusion here. Um, if anybody out there would like to write in, I would love for you to do so. You could find me several different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail or you can call into the X Labs voicemail hotline at six two three three nine six jerk. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. There is also, I haven't mentioned this in a while, there's xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com, which has every show on it. It's just the xlaps stuff, essential xlaps, the Sunday specials, all there uh, in nice tile format, so you know exactly what you're getting when you click on it. It's, uh, it's pretty neat, and I probably spend way too much time there just flipping through them all, because... Uh, well, I'm a damaged human being, I suppose. Um, you can find us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, always having some fun conversation in there. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available on all noise and sound aggregates around this world wide web. But that's going to do it for me. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 22 of the Essential x Lapsed, where uh, I'm getting this recording in very, very early in the day here because, uh, well, I have a dentist appointment in just a little while, and it's uh, pretty extensive stuff here, so I'm not sure I'll be able to talk a little bit later on today, so we gotta get this in right now. Uh, we are taking a look at part two of three of the Sentinel Saga here in X-Men number 15, December 1965 cover date. The story's called Prisoners of the Mysterious Master Mold. Written and edited by Stan Lee with layouts by Jack Kirby. Pencils Warner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks Dick Ayers. Letters Artie Simic. Colors, well, in my notes here I say, I'll try to think up something funny to say. And as usual, I did not. Um, cover price, 12 cents. And let's hop on in. Now we pick up Sort of, kind of, where we left off last issue. It's honestly a little bit jarring. Um, I almost assumed, in looking at this first page, that it was one of them, uh, like, Silver Age spoilery splashes that reveals a big event from later in the issue. But it's not. Now, if you remember how last time the X-Men arrived at that field of crabgrass, and then from it rose a heavily armed fortress. Well, yeah, we're still there. Only, the Fortress gimmick is pulling, like, a fake-ass Krakoa and attacking our heroes? Sorta? I guess what I'm trying to say is that they're all knocked off their feet here by the undulating earth beneath them. Now, even Professor X falls out of his wheelchair and is, uh, he nearly falls into a newly opened chasm. Now, Warren swoops over to save him, despite the fact that Xavier tells him that he's more than capable of saving himself. I mean, just take the act of kindness, Chuck. Uh, who are you trying to impress, right? Jean's not into you. You don't have to worry. And I mean, if she were, it would be a felony anyway, so be thankful. So we get a couple of pages, or actually several pages, of the X-Men fighting a hill. And it's just as stupid as it sounds. Finally, they arrive back at the Overlook where they started, and the underground fortress continues to rise and blasts lasers in every which direction. Now, Xavier refers to these blasters as nature activator rays, which, okay. He also reminds the kids that they're here to figure out what a master mold is. Angel wonders how they'll ever get past the nature rays, and Xavier ignores the question and asks one of his own. He asks, why in the world did that one sentinel back at the TV studio shut down? He deduces that they must have a weak spot, and it's going to be up to him to find and exploit it. Now, while Xavier thoughtfully strokes his own chin, Iceman is off to the side crafting, like, this weird sled. It kind of looks like an oversized ashtray with a pair of lumps sticking out that he and Hank will hold on to. Now, Cyclops will provide the motive power for this oversized ashtray by blasting it with his optic beams. So, we get another few panels of Sykes' visor slowly opening before he blasts the bejesus out of the sled, which sends it way over toward the fort. It's like skipping a stone here. Now, Xavier, he then has Warren fly after them, which kind of begs the question as to why we needed the sled gimmick in the first place. <laughs> I mean, if Warren could go over there just as easily, he could probably just carry a guy or two over there, too. Anyway, Bobby and Hank lose control of the ice disc and are then grabbed by a pair of tentacles and yanked into the fortress. Warren goes to follow them, but Hank tells him not to because he's got to get back and wrangle the others. Now, just as Hank says this, a burst of flame nearly singes Angel's wings. Inside, Beast and Kid Cool are deposited into a class box and then gassed until they pass out. We head back over to Trask, who is still attempting to appeal to his robotic charges. 
You see, the Sentinels, they're planning to defeat all humans who dare defy them. I'm not sure what their overarching goal is here. Uh, I suppose we might assume world domination. Which, if we take this through the prism of the post-Hoxpox era, uh, maybe that's step one in the, uh, the way we're getting to post-humanity. I don't know. Now, Trask pleads with them to reconsider, uh, claiming that these bots can't take over the other bots that he created. Now, one of the Sentinels, maybe number 11, tells him that they're far more than meets the eye, and then tells him that he ought to know all about that since he created them. And it's worth noting here, the Sentinels, they're all, like, identified by number or letter. They have them on their, on their bellies. Trask mentions that all he did was create the Master Mold, and it's the Master Mold who created the Sentinels. So, I guess this is his way of saying he hasn't the foggiest idea what the Sentinels are actually capable of. He reminds them that their only duty, as far as he knew, was to guard the human race from mutants. The Sentinel responds that the only way they can truly guard the human race is to take over it. Uh, Trask goes red in the face, likely a coloring error, and is dragged away to the Master Mold while he considers the massive boner he pulled in unleashing the Sentinels in the first place. Now it's here that we see the Master Mold that we all know and tolerate. You know, the giant Sentinel and with the weird helmet sitting in a chair, you know? It's worth noting, uh, the Master Mold looks kind of like a Mego or Mego action figure. Like, he looks like he's wearing actual cloth. He's a very soft-looking robo-fella. Master Mold then instructs Bolivar Trask that uh, he's going to be creating new Sentinels. And, I mean, like, just a page ago, didn't we find out that Trask only created the Master Mold and then the Master Mold created the Sentinels? I don't know. Whatever the case, Trask refuses. He will not enslave the human race. He would rather die. Well, that makes no difference to Sentinel number 11. He doesn't have much of a problem killing Trask if that's what uh, needs to happen. Master Mold reminds Trask that he has enough power to destroy half the nation right this very second should he decide to. M.M. tells Trask that if he refuses to help, well, that's exactly what he's going to do. And all that blood will be on Trask's hands. And Trask is all, you wouldn't. And Master Mold is like, we're robots, what do we care? Trask tells the Mold that the X-Men will find a way to destroy the Sentinels. So, uh, boy, the worm has certainly turned here, hasn't it? Master Mold tells Trask that the X-Men ain't nothing. As a matter of fact, he's got two of them already in captivity. Now, speaking of the X-Men, let's let's head back outside and check in. Angel reports that Hank and Bobby done got snatched. To which Cyclops replies, basic with, yeah, tell us something we don't know. Xavier then touches his temples to try and figure out a way past the fortress's defenses. And now here is where things get wonky-er. Xavier says that if he could manage to blank out the minds of the Sentinels, you know, the the robots, um, then he could probably nullify the laser barrage. And yes, even Chuck realizes that the Sentinels don't have brains, but suggests that he could still strike at them with mental energies in order to shut them down. Eh? Okay. So, uh, that's exactly what he does. Bada-bing, bada-boom, the sentinel sentries all collapse to the ground inside the fortress. And these sentinels, they're lettered, by the way. They're not numbered. We see A, B, L, and T here. Elsewhere in the fortress, sentinels 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6 carry the beast toward the Master Mold's room, where he will be eventually laid out on a table. Now, the gimmick here is they're going to place him under a psychoprobe, which will reveal all the beast's innermost secrets. It's a kind of a ray of truth serum, I guess. That's probably what we can consider it as the uh, the quick and easy. 
Now, I thought the Master Mold wanted all the deets on taking out humans now. So why is he still worried about the mutants? I mean, aren't the Sentinels already programmed to take on mutants? Oh well, we were promised on the cover of this issue that we would get the origin of the beast, and I guess this is as good a way as any to facilitate that story being told. So, the psychoprobe is flipped on, and old Hank starts yapping. Now, he doesn't refer to himself as Hank McCoy, by the way. He only calls himself the Beast. So that's convenient. He is, of course, one of the X-Men. And their sworn duty is to protect mankind from evil mutants and all other dangers. Now, upon hearing this, Trask truly realizes how badly he goofed up. Because he never thought for a single moment that any mutants could be good guys. Which, I mean, haven't they been on the cover, like the front page of every single non-Daily Bugle newspaper for being heroes for like over a year at this point? Oh well, um, back outside. The remaining X-Men take the opportunity to enter the no longer lasery fortress. Cyclops blasts one of the inactive lasers anyway. Thankfully, we don't get three panels of him raising his ruby visor to do so. Once inside, they come across Sentinels A, B, and C, the three gunnery bots that Xavier took out with his mental hoodoo, and they're just laying there, like leaned up against a wall. But then, they're approached by another active Sentinel. Now, this one doesn't appear to be all that dangerous as of yet. The bot informs the X-Men that it wasn't programmed to expect more visitors, and offers to escort them to their section leader, which (laughs) is pretty convenient. And so they follow. Now, Warren suggests that they just take the Sentinel out from behind. Scott wisely decides against that, citing that the one that they want is the leader, and if they just follow, they'll eventually find him. Now, Professor X psychically gives Scott the opposite of a demerit for his good decision. Back to the babbling, barefoot, blue-suited beast, he tells the tale of his youth, about how he was bullied for being different. Being different for his anthropoid physique, which... Warner Roth really doesn't do a great job getting across to us in the art. Uh, Kid Hank just looks like a kid, like a normal kid. His feet and his hands don't look abnormally large or anything. He's not hunched over. So I guess we'll just take Stan's narration for it. So we've got a bully here vowing to paste Hank one, to which Hank starts bouncing around like an international jumping bean, right into the path of an oncoming car, which Hank also backflips over with ease. Back in the present, Hank states that the hatred he faced had turned into, you guessed it, fear. See, people were scared of him, which made him lonelier than ever. We'll put a a pin in his story for a moment, because elsewhere, the X-Men are continuing their tour of the facilities, where they come across Bobby in a box. Now, it's at this point they decide to break away from their tour guide and attempt to free their pal. Now, the Sentinel, as you might imagine, is not keen on this, and so it's time to fight. And the fight goes on for two entire panels. Uh, Jean TK lifts the Sentinel and then drops it on its face. While she does this, Cyclops frees Iceman, which triggers the clanging of an alarm to begin sounding. The entire fortress is on high alert. Except for, you know, the Master Mold room. Now, they do hear the alarm, yes. Old M.M. just isn't all that interested in checking it out. Because, I mean, what could it possibly be? And so, let's get back into Hank's origin. Now, he was at the top of his class in everything. He was a top scholar, he was the best athlete. Nobody realized he was different until this one time he decided to celebrate in the end zone after scoring a championship-winning touchdown. He removed his shoes, which surely excited all the beatniks in the crowd, then proceeded to hang from the goalposts by his tootsies, which 
I mean, that doesn't sound like a good idea or even something one would naturally do. Anyway, the news of these antics make it to the front page of the alumni newspaper, which, for some reason, Professor X had a subscription to. Well, we, we know he's got certain proclivities, right? So Xavier, he reads up on this beast football player and his antics and decides to pay the McCoys a visit. Now, during a shared meal, Charles tells the McCoys about his school and how he would like to train Hank to use his powers for good. Now, Ma and Pa McCoy, they're very proud of their boy, and uh, they don't like it when people call him a freak. And so they agree to send him off with this creepy bald man with a subscription to the high school newspaper who they just met. Back to the present. Xavier is scanning Hank's mind as he blabs about his origin. Knowing that it'll soon come out that Charles Xavier is his mentor and the leader of the X-Men, he decides he's got to put a stop to this. Now, it's kind of funny how he didn't care about the Beast's mind getting invaded. <laughs> it's just that when his name is about to come up, that he intervenes. And so, Xavier pulls the astral projection gimmick and heads inside to shut down Hank's mind. And he does. He plunges Henry McCoy into a coma that he's never woken up from since. Then two panels later, Sage comes in and breaks his neck. Oh, okay, okay, maybe not, maybe not. Anyway, whatever he did, this clammed Beast up good, and so the Master Mold wonders exactly what in the hell's going on. You know, he stopped talking. Now Trask frantically jiggles the Psycho Beam, claiming that it should be working, everything looks to be a go, and it's here where Xavier decides to attempt to strike out the Master Mold itself. This does not work out all that well. MM responds to the attempted mental whatever-the-hell with a barrage of microelectric blasts which actually managed to harm the astral-projected professor. <clears throat> Easy for me to say. That, that actually took like eight takes. Uh, now, Xavier crawls out of there in an attempt to rejoin his physical body before it's too late, because if he doesn't get back there, he's just going to be a husk. Let's get back to the X-Men. They're located by a searching squad of Sentinels, and so Bobby erects a great big ice wall to try to hold them off. And you may be asking yourself at this point, uh, will the ice barrier finally work this time? And I would respond to that question with, what do you think? Of course not. Don't be ridiculous. Now, the Sentinels are able to burst through the ice wall here. Uh, the X-Men do manage to fall one of the big bots, but are then smacked with a heavy gravity ray, which floors the lot of them. We wrap up with the Master Mold commanding Trest to create an army of Sentinels numbering in the thousands. He's dragged away to his lab, all the while lamenting all the bad decisions he's made of late. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, we will get the senses-shattering conclusion of the Sentinel Saga. Now let's hop into the letters page here. We're going to start with James in Missouri, and he gives us a review in six words. They are simply the greatest comics. See, he loved the X-Men's clash with the Juggernaut, and he's willing to get down on his knees to beg Stan to bring Magneto back. Here, Stan mentions how fickle the fans be, because when Magneto was around, everyone wanted him gone. And now that he's gone, everyone wants him back. I mean, that's just comic fans for you, isn't it? Next up, Perry in Iowa. He shares how he tried to make an alphabet of comic book villains, and since Quicksilver joined the Avengers, he lost his Q entry. Now, he offers up a no prize of his own if a fellow fan can come up with a Q villain. And I don't think that's how it works there, Perry. I think only Stan can hand those out. Uh, they're safely under lock and key somewhere. I don't know how, how you can hand out your own. He, um, well, he shares his, uh, his alphabet of comic villains. Uh, anybody want to hear it? No? No? Well, uh, I mean, he, he went to such trouble. 
and I went to such trouble in transcribing it. So uh, I th- let, let's let's do it. Let's do it. A is for Atuma, B is for Beetle, C is for Commissar, D is for Destroyer, E is for Enchantress, F is for Fox, G is for Green Goblin, H is for Hymir, I is for Immortus, J is for Juggernaut, K is for Kurgo, L is for Lucifer, M is for Magneto, N is for Nedra or Nidra, I don't know who that is, O is for Owl, P is for Porcupine, Q, aww, we don't have a Q, R is for Radioactive Man, S is for Swordsman, T is for Trago, U is for Eunice, V is for Vulture, W is for Wonder Man, X is for Xanadu, Y is for Yag, and Z is for Zarko. Now Stan tells Perry that he checked with Hawkeye, and uh, they're in agreement that uh, if it makes him happy, he can keep Quicksilver in the Q position for now. Which almost sounds perverted. Anyway, next up, Ken in New York. He loves the blob. So I, I guess he's the one. Um, now, he'd like to see the Blob fight the Avengers in the Fantastic Four. He would also like Kazar to come back. He also loved the Stranger. What? And he wants more Juggernaut. So I feel like this might be another Marvel AI letter. This just seems a little too strange here. Now, Stan reveals that Kazar is coming back next month in an offbeat guest appearance, just not in the pages of X-Men. But Stan forgets which book it'll be. Now, a quick check of the Marvel Wiki reveals that Kazar will appear in next month's Daredevil number 12. So if anyone's doing a, an essential Kazlapse or Kazlapsed uh, program, uh, that's the next book you got to cover in the uh, rotation. Next up, Alvin in Pennsylvania. He loved the Juggernaut two-parter, and he attempts to no-prize how Cyclops' visor works. <laughs> and it's uh, pretty insane. He suggests that when Scott, quote, pushes his eyebrows down in a maddened position, unquote, that they press down on a flap that opens a visor. Now, he thinks that they should change the name of the letters page from Let's Visit the X-Men to Mutant's Mailbag or X-Men Extras. Now, uh, Stan, he gives Alvin some props on his theory of how Cyclops opens his visor, but asks what happens if Psyche accidentally squints. So I think uh, that's a uh, polite declining of handing you a no prize, because, I I mean, I, I... that's a bad theory. <laughs> Just isn't a good theory here. As for changing the name of the letters page, Stan doesn't address it here. But, um, yeah, Let's Visit the X-Men is an odd and clunky name for a uh, letters page. Next up, Joe in Illinois. And dude's got cues. He's got a lot of questions here. What is Wanda and Pietro's last name? Why doesn't Spidey's web stick to him? How old is Reed Richards? Why are the X-Men still at the Xavier School post-graduation? Why hasn't Thor married Jane Foster yet? Why isn't the Submariner getting old? How do you pronounce Odin? Why didn't the Human Torch graduate high school like Peter Parker did? Where does Matt Murdock hide his mask? And is Jack Kirby ever going to ink his own work? Now, uh, Stan doesn't answer any of the questions. (laughs) He just tells Joe to keep reading. So I really can't wait for the how-do-you-pronounce-Odin story arc in Journey into Mystery because, uh, I mean, where else are you going to reveal something like that? Next up, Al in California. He says the Juggernaut two-parter was more exciting and realistic than a James Bond novel. Okay. Uh, He suggests Hollywood might make a movie out of it, and let's not give them any more ideas. He wonders if Professor X regularly brainwashes the X-Men to keep them sharp. In addition, he actually has a critique. Okay, He claims that in the Charles Kane relationship that it's Xavier who looks like the bad guy. And hey, we kind of said as much as well. 
Now, Stan assures us that Chuck's a good guy, even though in last issue's letters page, he kind of asserted that he killed the juggernaut at the end of issue 13. So, uh, yeah, what are you going to do? James in Ontario, he tries to explain Cyclops' visor as well. He suggests that there's a dial on the side of it that controls the beam. And Stan comments that that's as good a theory as any, and so good, in fact, that he might steal it. Byron in California. Now, he tries for a no prize to explain why Xavier is always seen hanging out with the X-Men, despite not being a publicly known mutant. He, um, he... He spends a couple of paragraphs crafting a wildly unfunny narrative about about how it's it's actually the chameleon from the Spidey book. Um, Stan gives it a thumbs up, which is more polite than me yawning at it. Jimmy in NYC. He cites Darwin and DeVries uh, to explain the concept of mutantum, and just to point out that Stan is using the word incorrectly. Jimmy suggests that either those scientists are wrong or Stan is wrong. And Stan, in Stan fashion, frantically replies asking, well, which one of us is wrong? Which is great. Rich in Jersey, he loves the scholarly beast, and he would like to see him and the Scarlet Witch in a relationship. And I mean, we know from nowadays, Wanda won't even reply to his emails. Stan responds by uh, suggesting maybe they'll set up the Hulk with Aunt May. And uh, nobody tell a current year writer about that, okay? We, We don't need that. Monty in Memphis, he owns 72 Marvel Comics, otherwise known as a week's worth in 2021. He loves the X-Men best of all. He enjoyed issue 13, but he's still unsure about how the X-Men beat the Juggernaut. Well, Monty, um, they're going to spend much of the next half century beating him by first yanking off his helmet and then hitting him with some psychic hoodoo, so uh, get used to it. He enjoyed the Human Torch cameo here. He also doesn't like the name of the letters page. He suggests changing it to, quote, Homo sapiens talk to the X-Men, which might even be worse than what they have now. Now, Stan realizes that Let's Visit with the X-Men sucks as a letters page title, and he offers a no prize to any fan who can come up with something better. And I gotta say, I mean, does Stan think no prizes grow on trees here? Because he's just giving them away. Anyway, that is our final letter. Let's head into special announcements land. Now, Stan announces that there's a musical quartet based out of Waukegan, Illinois, that calls themselves the X-Men. And he fears that when this swinging band gets to be bigger than the Beatles, that people will think Marvel named the X-Men after them. Stan might want to get a hold of his lawyer at some point, and I'm sure like an eight-year-old Jim Shooter is probably like foaming at the mouth reading this, you know? It's like, you gotta protect those properties, Stan. What are you thinking? Anyway, let's pop into some actual bullpen bulletins here. That is on a whole new page now, of course. And the first, the first uh, news story here is Stan admitting that the Marvel pop art experiment was a failure. If you remember, they, they labeled their comics Marvel pop art productions or whatever for like a month or two. And uh, he reveals that he received a lot of angry missives about the change, and so they're back to just being Marvel Comics group. So, uh, fans, you have a voice. And, uh, I mean, Stan is, uh, if nothing else, he's very reactive. We got some art merry-go-round going on. Don Heck will be uh, covering an issue of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., or I guess a story of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but he will remain on Avengers full-time. Adam Austin, or Gene Colan, will be drawing Iron Man, and he promises that a new mystery artist will be taking on a new Marvel strip. Stan announces Marvel Collector's Item Classics, which he refers to as having an annual four times a year. It's a quarterly book, and it's chock-full of reprints, so... uh, that's what you're in the market for? Well, you now you have it. We can hop over to the Did You Know department. 
Now, did you know Saul Brodsky is a crackerjack penciler? Well, you do now. Did you know Hank Pym's going to be making a guest appearance? Hmm. Did you know Stan's Girl Friday, Flo Steinberg, is winning popularity polls in colleges all across the nation? What? <laughs> okay. Also, did you know Martin Goodman is one of the nation's top amateur golfers? Stan claims that he had never caddied for the man, but just uh, take his word for it. Stan says he gets a lot of letters asking what the top-selling Marvel comic is, and to answer that question, he says he doesn't know. So we'll just call it a ten-way tie or something. If you remember last time, we had a picture of a mystery mailing tube. I know you were all on the edge of your seats trying to figure out what was in this mystery mailing tube, and here it is revealed. We open this sucker up, unroll what's inside, and it's a six-foot-tall, full-color Spider-Man poster. Yours for only $1.99. So you could basically buy 17 Marvel comics or this poster. Um, we get 25 new Merry Marvel marchers here, and of course their names and hometowns are listed. Nobody I recognize, but there is someone here named Dick Hurt Jr., which uh, I figure I had to mention. I mean, not only the fact that there's a Dick Hurt, but there are at least two of them, because he's a junior. Oh well. Mighty Marvel Checklist. Let's take a look at the books that were on the shelves around the same time as this issue of X-Men. Fantastic Four number 45 has More Inhumans. So you're safe to skip that one. Uh, Spider-Man number 32 reveals the identity of the Master Planner. Avengers number 23 asks the question, has Captain America quit the team? Daredevil number 11, a time to unmask, will leave you speechless. And hey, you know, this is before Matt Murdock would unmask like every couple of years and then like remask and then unmask and then remask and then unmask. I mean, and that's just the Bendis run. So, I mean, this is a novelty back in the day. Thor number 123, Odin attacked. Tales of Suspense number 73, Adam Austin on Iron Man, and Cap is still fighting the sleeper. Strange Tales number 140, The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. see the end of Hydra, and Doctor Strange in the Pincers of Power. Tales to Astonish 75, Submariner continues finishing his quest, and not even the Hulk is strong enough for what's about to happen to him. Sergeant Fury number 25 features Nick Fury facing off with one of Cap's old villains, and that is the month in Marvel. So what did we think about this middle chapter of the Sentinel Saga here? Um, have I said silly but fun? Well, actually, I don't even need to say that here because this was just kind of, uh, this wasn't great. I feel like we're, like, not sure if the Sentinels are robots or if they have minds of their own here. It's very strange the way that they're, uh, depicted and dealt with. It's kind of inconsistent. Like, sometimes they sound like robots. They have, like, the voice of a robot. And sometimes they talk like they're, uh, like New York cabbies. It's very strange. We also have the Professor sometimes able to get through to them, sometimes not. We get like a couple of pages of Iceman making that big oversized ashtray, only to have Angel fly in after them anyway. It's just very bizarre. And of course, I mean, Stan wasn't writing this for some idiot in his 40s to uh, analyze a half century later. I try to preface that <laughs> every single time, but I mean, the story is a little holy. There are some holes in this story is uh, what I'm trying to say here. And uh, one thing, you know, Stan, one of his uh, sayings is never give the fans what they think they want, right? That's something that we've heard time and again that Stan would say. And I feel like we're seeing maybe the genesis of that during this Silver Age revisit as so much of uh, the story we've been reading is reactionary. 
I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to cover the letters page here. Not not so much. This is kind of a happy accident of covering the letters page. I wanted to cover the letters page just because I'm a mark for the letters page. I love the letters page, especially old ones, because it's just such a unique point of view for us to be able to take in. But in a happy accident here, we're seeing some of the suggestions that the fans are making, and we're also seeing how Stan is kind of just giving them what they want. We have a, like a loud voice saying, get rid of Magneto, and so... He gets rid of Magneto, right? People want to know the origins of these characters. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, let's shoehorn some origin stories in. Even silly stuff like giving Iceman his uh, his booties back, you know? It's just, uh, Stan is giving the fans what they want. And, of course, the pendulum will swing the other way, and people will, will complain about this pretty soon, and then Stan will give those fans what they want, ticking off the other half. So it's like, I guess it's an exercise in you can't make everybody happy. But what we do get here is a spotlight on the pre-X-Men Hank McCoy, right? We see him as a child. It would have been nice if the art was a little bit more representative of what was going on on the uh, in the story. But again, this is Marvel method, so it's pretty likely that the art existed before the script did. Which, uh, I mean, Stan says that he had an arthropoid stature, and uh, all we see is a is a little boy. And I mean, the flashback wasn't. It wasn't terrible, it was just kind of unnecessary, I think. And I say that as one of the last Beast fans still standing. So it's a little little unnecessary, but I will hand it one thing, which I thought it did very, very well. We have the Beast introducing himself under the, you know, under the control of the Psycho Wave or whatever it was. And he basically gives out the X-Men's mission statement. They're here to protect humanity, and he says that right to, or right under, Bolivar Trask, who... Realizes that, uh, well, he, he made a bigger mistake than he initially thought I suppose for that and that alone I could excuse the scene and say it was worthwhile Which is to say, pretty much discount everything I said for the past 20 seconds It was, it was a value-added scene I've, uh, I've come around <laughs> in arguing with myself I've come around to uh, appreciating it and accepting it Other than that, though, there's not a whole heck of a lot to say here This is uh, very much a middle chapter It'll bridge the gap and we will cover the uh, conclusion next time out the art here was you know, strong as usual. Um, we're just a few issues away from Werner Roth taking over like complete artistic control of this book here, so we won't have the king on layouts anymore. It'll be all Werner Roth on pencils and uh, plotting, I suppose. Um, so I'm very interested in seeing how that uh, transition happens, if it's a smooth one or if it's something that uh, that we notice right off the bat. But I think that's all I have to say about this middle chapter of the Sentinel Saga. I'm still enjoying it. Uh, this was kind of a lull, but, uh, you know, nothing to get hot at. It was, uh, it was fine. <laughs> and uh, I hope you're all enjoying it as well. If you are, hey, even if you ain't, please write in. Let me know. You can find me several different places uh, on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can pop in over at chrisisoninfiniteers.com to see blog posts and show notes. You can join us on Facebook. The group is 90s X-Men. And for all the Chris and Reggie audio content you could possibly want, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that's available on uh, whatever device you're listening on right now and probably many, many more. But that will do it. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to occupy your ear for a little while today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 23 of the Essential X Lapsed, where uh, I'm back behind the microphone after a couple of days away from the microphone. I was a little bit ahead on my recording, and that's a good thing because I went in for some uh, dental procedure that left my mouth feeling very, very strange. So I uh, was able to keep everything going without uh, too much discomfort and uh, too much uh, just uh, really unpleasant to listen to, uh, or I guess even more unpleasant to listen to, uh, audio antics from uh, yours truly here. Thing of it is, um, I'm not done with the dental stuff yet. Uh, I do have probably another four or five hours of very invasive Treatments to uh, go through they they found something that they'd like to get a better look at uh, hopefully and probably it's nothing but uh, Hey, it's always better to be safe than sorry. So The uh, some episodes in the next couple of weeks might sound a little rougher than usual, but uh, we'll uh, We'll burn that bridge when we get to it. How about that? Uh, right now speaking of burning bridges here. Let's finish off our sentinel saga we're talking X-Men number 16 today, January 1966 cover date. Stories called The Supreme Sacrifice, written and edited by Stan Lee with layouts by Jack Kirby. Pencils, Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks, or Delineation, by Dick Ayers. Letters, Artie Simic. Colors, um, well, probably someone with an overabundance of pink and purple crayons. Cover price, 12 cents. Now, let's get into it here. We open with a splash page that sort of kind of resembles the cover of X-Factor number 6 from July 1986 cover, only with the Master Mold's head in the middle instead of Apocalypse. And the X-Men, they're even in similar, though not identical, poses. It's, uh, it's pretty cool to look at. It's, uh, it's interesting. Anyway, our story kicks off with the revelation that Professor X was, in fact, able to return his astral form to his physical husk. Now, he recalls the events of last issue. His X-Men are trapped inside the fortress. The Sentinels, of course, are bad news. And, uh, you know, we all know how we got here, right? Just then, the fortress begins to sink back into the ground, hidden under that field of crabgrass. And Xavier laments the fact that now his students are completely cut off from him. Is that a fact? I mean, all it takes is some dirt and metal to interfere with the most powerful mutant mind on the planet? I guess it's too bad he doesn't have, like, a portable mento helmet to, to help amp himself up. Now, Xavier realizes that the best thing he can do now is to head back into the city, where he can study that fallen sentinel back at the TV studio and attempt to deduce what made it go kaput. And so, he drags himself all the way to the nearest highway, where he psychically flags down a ride back to town. Now, the fellows who pick him up think to themselves that it's almost as though they're being forced to obey, and, uh, well, of course, they are. Meanwhile, the X-Men are trapped in a glass globe where the gravity is so strong that they can barely move. Now, the globe is being carried by the Sentinels into some sort of control room. Now, Cyclops attempts to loose an optic blast, but it doesn't even make a mark on the bauble. And I guess it's lucky that it didn't ricochet either, because uh, that would have probably cooked them all. Now, Jean tries to levitate, but cannot. Kid Cool then decides to craft an icy battering ram to press out both ends of the globe. And so he does his damnedest in order to fill the space with ice. Only, the glass proves to be too strong and his rod shatters. And Bobby laments the fact that he failed the team. Cyclops assures him that he didn't fail. And over the course of two sentences refers to Bobby as both boy and man. 
Now, Bobby only gloms onto the fact that Scott called him a man, which is apparently the first time anyone has referred to him as such, which is, uh, well, it's kind of sad. Let's head back to the Master Mold, where they're done with Hank, who uh, spilled the beans on some of the finer points of his origin story last issue, and so he's going to be deposited into that glass bauble thingy with his teammates for the next little while. Now, Bolivar Trask, he's still putting up a struggle regarding the part the Master Mold expects him to play in the next phase of the plan. Master Mold decides to illustrate just how powerless old Trask is by demonstrating his disintegrator beam. Now, M.M. fires a blast at a machine that kinda looks like the one Reed Richards borrowed from the Watcher right before the wedding. M.M. tells Trask that he'll wipe out the nearest city if Trask doesn't comply. And so old Bully doesn't really have much of a choice here. He agrees to aid the Master Mold while thinking to himself what a fool he has been. He also wishes that the X-Men were here to help him, so uh, the worm has certainly turned. Back to the TV studio. A bunch of officers are standing around the Fallen Sentinel, and uh, the Fallen Sentinel is actually uh, 3R, by the way. It's a, you know, it has a little logo on its belly. Now, the officers recount the events of X-Men number 14, and those events were that Trask created the Sentinels. Then the Sentinels took him prisoner. Our lead inspector wishes he knew why and where they took Trask. Just then, Professor X is carried in on a chair as though he's like Caesar or something. It's pretty funny. Now, he suggests that he could be of assistance, and the inspector says, Hey, hey, we'll take any help we can get because we haven't the foggiest idea what's going on. And so Charles holds his temples and, uh, well, as far as the officers are concerned, he just stares at the sentinel. The inspector rightly thinks that this is ridiculous and proceeds to call the prof out for it. Now, Xavier, thinking he was interrupted by Bobby Drake or something, tells the inspector to shut up at his face. And then it hits him. Now, the reason that the sentinel went kaput was due to signal interference. Xavier looks behind him to the gigantic window, which all closed-set TV studios have, right, uh, where he can see the Crystal Products building across the street. Unsurprisingly, it's adorned by... A giant crystal. Charles deduces that this crystal is what's getting in the way of the sentinel's signal. The inspector asserts that should they move the sentinel a bit to the left or the right, it might come back online. Xavier agrees, but suggests that maybe they don't try it all the same, right? You know, it's uh, let's not uh, tempt fate, right? We'll leave well enough alone. Let's head back to the fortress. Now, Beast is about to be loaded into the trouble bubble and the Sentinels all stand around in the defensive posture around the globe to ensure that the X-Men don't attempt to escape. Though no sooner do they flip the switch to plop the beast inside than they're slammed with an optic blast. It's actually pretty adorable. Uh, Cyclops nails one so hard that it causes like a weird domino effect reaction with it. You know, it just tangles all the Sentinels up. Cyclops leaps out, commenting how lucky it is that the Sentinels move so slow. And wasn't he surprised two issues ago about how fast the Sentinels moved? Oh well. Warren flies out of the bubble with Jean, and I guess we can assume that Bobby made his way out too, though we don't see him physically leave. Cyclops blasts the bubble lever in order to make sure it can't be sealed ever again. Even though the X-Men are all outside the thing anyway. From here, we get a load of tandem offense from our teenage heroes. Gene TKs Sentinel No. 7's arms while Iceman ices up the floor neath its feet. Scott throws Hank over his shoulder, and the kids all rush toward the Master Mold. But not so fast, mutant zombies, because the Sentinels all stand in a line and level our heroes with the Care Bear stare. Well, 
A concentration of stun rays, anyway. Um, now, working together are Sentinels S, T, 1, 6, 7, and 8. So it's nice to see lettered and numbered Sentinels working together despite their vast, vast differences. Now, the Sentinels go to prepare to smash the X-Men one final time when they all topple to the ground at once. But how can that be? Hmm. Well, you see, flying overhead at that very moment are Professor X and the police. And with them is a giant pink crystal. I mean, it is a... I mean, this thing is huge. This is a ridiculously sized crystal. The officers don't know why they're even here, considering that below them appears to be nothing more than a field of crabgrass. Xavier insists that this is where they must remain. Now, the officer wants to put up a fight, but cannot, since someone in Washington, D.C. advised him to do whatever the creepy, bald, staring man said. So I figure that's got to be our, our pal Fred Duncan, right? We haven't heard from him in a little bit. Stands to reason. Just then, the fortress rises and somehow fires a barrage of tornadoes skyward. Um, now, the cops want to pull back, but Xavier insists that they press on, claiming that they're really in no danger. And what do you know? The chopper trudges on, KOing the sentinels who are controlling the tornadoes, rendering it, you know, safe. Back inside, the X-Men reconnoiter, Beast included, and head toward the Master Mold. But then, the lights go out. The barefoot beast's bare feet feel the energy of a tremendous machine right below them, so they deduce that they gotta work their way downwards. Speaking of which, we rejoin Master Mold and old Bully Trask as he's about to create eight brand new sentinels. Now, you might think that he's frantically, like, screwing on machine limbs and soldering circuits, but no. Now, he's actually stood before eight electrified pods where the bad bots will simply manifest. Now, as Trask toils, he realizes that this system is a little too perfect, and that eventually Sentinels will outnumber humans, and when that happens, it'll all be his fault. Now, as the first eight Sentinels begin to take shape, Bully removes his protective gear and proceeds to smash up all the machinery around him. The Master Mold is quite, quite displeased, but... I mean, he's a machine that sits all the time. There really isn't a whole lot he can do about it. The machine goes foom, just as the X-Men are about to enter the room. Cyclops suggests that, hey, you know what? Maybe someone did their job for them. Angel worries that Dr. Trask might be injured. Beast kind of shrugs with a, like, sucks to be him sort of response. But then, just as the place begins to fall to pieces, immense waves of heat pour out, which bombard poor Bobby. Beast hoists Bobby up with his butt and proceeds to walk out on his hands. Um, Now you see Bobby's too slippery to hold by hand, and uh, Hank's butt is uh, widely known for its friction, and it's also just plain wide, so it's a good thing. Over the course of the next three pages, the X-Men make their escape from the fortress, dodging obstacles and flame. Professor X looks on while his students escape back to the surface while shielding their presence to all the officers on duty, And then, the fortress explodes. The Sentinels are out of commission forever. We go deep into the rubble where we see Boulevard Trask laid out on the chest of the Master Mold. And we close out with the tease that there's a menace waiting at the mansion for our heroes. Huh, next episode we will name that menace. And uh, it might be someone we recognize. But that's a discussion for next time. Um, Now, uh, I think I'm going to mix things up a little bit here by uh, giving some brief thoughts about the issue before we go into the letters and the bullpen and all that good stuff, because uh, 
I guess I'll pull my uh, my Stan Lee card here. By the time we get through the rest of the issue, I've already forgotten what we've talked about insofar as story. So uh, let's see if I can keep my faculties together long enough to uh, to spit out a few words about the third and final part of the Sentinel Saga. It, um, well, it wasn't great. <laughs> I didn't so much care for this. Uh, the Sentinels, uh, I, I can kind of take or leave the Sentinels. There have been some great Sentinel stories, but there have also been some not-so-great ones. And this first one really isn't that great. I, I like that it adds so much to the lore of the X-Men, because, I mean, the Sentinels are a huge part of uh, what's to come. You know, the whole fear and hate thing is is deeply rooted in the Sentinels here, and... I mean, that's even to the current year stuff here, where we're dealing with uh, post-humanity, Sentinels, Nimrod, stuff like that. But as far as this story is concerned, it just feels, um, it feels like the X-Men of this era are very, I don't know, maybe procedural? Is that the right term for this? Where there's a formula, right? There's a formula to these X-Men stories, no matter if it's a one-and-done, a two-and-done, or as we find out here, a three-and-done. The X-Men do their thing, they come up short. Then Professor X does something that uh, wins the day. I think this might be a trend that maybe puts me at odds with a lot of the uh, contemporary readers of the day, where uh, a lot of them were very, very pleased to see Professor X take such an active role and always be the problem solver. And uh, a lot of our letter hacks, or a few of our letter hacks, have even cited Professor X as being their favorite character, which, I mean... I really couldn't imagine that uh, at, at any point in time, considering Professor X even in like the top ten of my favorite characters. But here we are, the the big brain fixes everything, and the X-Men kind of just, uh, they're just there, right? They're, they're all captured. They, uh, they only escape because the Professor did his thing. They would have surely perished. You know, they were being bombarded by, by rays, the Care Bear stare of the Sentinels. It was going to take them out. If uh, not for the creepy bald man in a helicopter overhead, right? And making the X-Men even more incidental in their own book, uh, Bolivar Trask is the one who took down the Master Mold. And don't get me wrong, that's the way it should have ended, right? The, uh, Bolivar came to his senses, realized that he was in the wrong by setting up the Sentinel Army. He had misjudged mutants, he had misjudged the X-Men, and so he went ahead and uh, fulfilled the uh, story's title in performing you know, the ultimate sacrifice here, taking himself out, but also... Taking out the Master Mold So that much I appreciated and really enjoyed But uh, you know, the Professor X stuff I could really do without um, Art here was fine uh, I mean, the X-Men book is uh, I think it's going to be a little while before we really get uh, amped up about the art It's kind of just the house style uh, If it's Kirby, if it's uh, Werner Roth It's just the house style right now Nothing to get angry about, nothing to get very excited about It's uh, just kind of there It'll be interesting to see how things go when Kirby leaves the book uh, Not too long from now and, and leaves it completely in Warner Roth's hands But uh, we'll get there when we get there Overall, I'm happy to have this one in the rear view <laughs> I think three issues for this was uh, perhaps a little much But much like the art, really nothing to get too hot about and nothing to get too excited about Kind of just was what it was, and uh, now we've added to the lore And we've got issues to to cite any time we talk about the Master Mold or the Sentinels in the future Is it worth actually, you know, sitting down with and reading? Eh, maybe I mean, just don't expect anything uh, to rock your socks and I guess you'll be fine But uh, that'll do it for my thoughts on this issue And uh, hey, how about we hop into the letters page now? 
Alrighty, we're going to kick things off with Alex from Tennessee, who is another uh, one of the smartest people in the room. Um, now, he claims that Stan's use of the term Homo sapiens really disturbs him, and claims any student of Latin should be equally disturbed. He states that it means, literally, wise man or sensible man. States that the plural of the term is omines sapientes, or sapientes. I, I never took Latin. Um, he takes issue with Stan's made-up term homo superior as well, um, claiming that this means higher man, and uh, that the plural would be omines superioris. So uh, Stan is both incorrect and just a uh, Latin phony, I suppose, which... Uh, I, I mean, these are comics, right? Is that? Uh, I, I thought that these were comics. Um, anyway, Stan is just—he's totally embarrassed here. Uh, he now knows that everyone is going to know that he only took one term of Latin back in school and didn't do that great, apparently. So uh, I hope you feel good about yourself, Alex in Tennessee. I guess I don't know. John in Colorado—he says that the two-part Juggernaut tale was a masterpiece. He wants to see the Beast in a tighter costume. Okay, then. And uh, of those costumes, he would like to see them go back to being black and yellow instead of blue and yellow. And he wants the X-Men to go monthly. So uh, we got a few things here. Anybody want to guess which of these Stan is going to mention in his reply? Is he going to talk about the Beast's tighter costume, or the color of the costumes, or the fact that the book went monthly? Huh. Boy, I wonder. Don in Maryland. The X-Men are the greatest things in comics history... And he got in trouble for reading an issue in school. You see, his teacher confiscated his copy, but was later seen reading it herself. The teacher gave it back to him at the end of the day. Now, Stan, he says that he would have rathered she kept the book to prove that she's a real Marvel madman. Hugo in Kentucky. Now, he was listening to WLS radio from Chicago and was shocked to learn that the DJ, Art Roberts, was a member of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. And uh, this is what finally put him over the edge to send in his buck to join as well. Now, he also brags that he owns 252 Marvel Comics. And, jeez, uh, could you imagine what those things are worth right now? I mean, wow. Now, Stan wonders if Art Roberts might demand a commission from Hugo's dollar. And uh, I wonder how much of that dollar it would be. Tommy in Maryland. He thinks Warren Worthington should be embarrassed to use the name Angel and wonders why he uses it. Really? <laughs> I mean, he's got wings, dude. Uh, Stan says if flying around in his X-Men costume doesn't embarrass him, then the name won't either. He also informs us that all the gals in the bullpen think Warren's a real pussycat. And uh, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but uh, we'll, we'll allow it. Larry in Iowa thought X-Men number 12 was beautiful and loved the Toth-Coletta combo. He loved the issue and the feeling of terror presented by Juggernaut's approach of the mansion. He claims that he hated Magneto and he's happy that he's gone. And he's a Merry Marvel marcher himself and thinks the stationary set is real keen. Larry in Manitoba has bought every issue of X-Men, and his favorite character is Cyclops, and he likes that he's not a wisecracking hero like so many of the Marvel heroes right now. And he compares his optic blasts to a cue-stick hitting a billiard ball. Thanks for sharing, Larry. Michael in California thought X-Men number 13 was fabulous, but he was sad to see Alex Toth go after only one-ish. He liked the Human Torch guest spot, and he liked seeing Professor X's powers amped up with the Mento helmet. Peter in Minnesota, 
he considers himself a representative of the... You ready for something really unfunny? Okay, let's do this here. The H-S-O-P-D-A-S-M-M-S. That stands for the Help Stamp Out Putting Down of Artie Symek in Marvel Mag Society. Now, he's tired of seeing all the blasphemous comments about Artie in the comments page. And, well, dear listener, I might have failed you all here. Because I don't normally comment on the silliness in the credits, because Stan will be silly in the credits. Or whoever's writing them, I suppose, is being silly. So, uh, if you're not actually reading along with the show, this might all be lost on you. So, I figure I'm going to go through all of the Art Symec appearances we've covered so far and uh, tell you how he is introduced. Okay? So, the first time we saw Art Symec was X-Men number 3. The credits read, Lettering, Art Symec. So, very, very disrespectful. Uh, X-Men number 4, Legible Lettering by Art Symec. I mean, just, I, I can't, I can't bear with this. Fantastic Four number 28, lettered by Art Symek, and then in parentheses, The Letterer. Okay. X-Men number 7, lettered with all the words spelled right by Art Symek. Mm-hmm. Strange Tales 128, melancholy lettering by Artie Symek. It's not really an insult. X-Men number 11 might be the worst of all here. Exemplary lettering by Artie Symek. Real insult to the man. Avengers number 16, Delicate Lettering by Art Symek. X-Men number 14, Artie Symek, comma, T-O-L, and then in parentheses, T-O-L stands for Tired of Lettering. X-Men number 15, Adorable Artie Symek, comma, Letterer. X-Men number 16, Lettering, colon, Art Symek. Now, Pete claims that until this abuse stops, he will picket all newsstands in the five-county mosquito-controlled district. And uh, Stan informs him that this letter was received by sloppy, sneaky, skinny Stan Lee, and then reread by sophisticated, sensational, superb Artie Symek, hoping that that might help make things right with, uh, with old Pete here. And uh, we're actually going to change the credits up completely in a couple of episodes to, uh, to glorify Artie Symek. So... Uh, Stan is uh, ever the reactionary at this point so, um, And I do know that he had his fun with uh, the letterers in the credits uh, Just that the X-Men book doesn't seem to be Or the X-Men appearances overall just don't seem to be uh, all that noteworthy in that regard Next up, Lewis in California Now he feels as though Marvel Comics might be fit to wrap fish or line garbage pails Lou is annoyed by the blindingly prejudiced Marvel madmen in the letters pages But... He won't say anything else untoward since he just bought two new Marvels that blew him over. Those being Fantastic Four Annual number 3 and X-Men number 13. Now he says that Fantastic Four Annual number 3 wasn't the best annual ever, but it was the best 1965 annual. He thought that the plot was thin but loved all the cameos, which is pretty apt if you ask me. That's basically how we came away from it, right? Uh, and he was happy that it reprinted Fan- Fantastic Four number 6 since he no longer owns it. And he thought X-Men number 13 was outstanding and would like to see Joe Sinnott get more work. Now, Stan says that Sinnott will be inking Fantastic Four from this point on. Now, that does it for the letters page, but now the bullpen is actually on its own page. So uh, we will be taking a look at the entirety of the uh, bullpen bulletins from, uh, I guess, from the very start here. So in it, we have Stan explaining that hundreds of letters wrote in to ask why the 1965 Marvel annuals were so reprint-heavy. And Stan gives two reasons. One might be more honest than the other. 
Uh, the first is that there are so many new readers who didn't get them the first time around. I mean, that's honest enough, but I don't think that's the more honest answer, which is number two. Stan says, uh, hey, it takes a long time to make new comics. And I mean, who could really argue that? He then goes on to compare Marvel's annuals to the brand Ech annuals. And uh, the brand Ech annuals feature no new content. They're all reprints, so uh, Marvel goes the extra mile for you. Stan then introduces the world to Roy Thomas, and he refers to him as a fan who made it. Roy is a school teacher in St. Louis who loves Marvel Comics more than anything. And, well, uh, he might like Brand Ech more at this point, but uh, we, we won't worry about that for now. Uh, now, Roy will be taking over uh, scripting duties on X-Men in, I believe, issue 20. So, uh, four episodes from now, we will have Rascally Roy on the script. Stan then mentions how he always teases the letterers in the credits. Huh. Talk about quick reaction time to a certain letter, huh? He assures us all that it's just in fun and how he loves Artie Simek and Sam Rosen. Stan announces that Joe Sinnott will be the permanent inker on Fantastic Four, which we found out in the letters page. In the Did You Know department, we find out that uh, Marvel is part of a huge publishing empire featuring mags like Monsters Unlimited and You Don't Say. We wrap up by listing 25 new Merry Marvel Marchers, and uh, they all get their names and hometowns listed here. Let's wrap things up with our mighty Marvel checklist here. Fantastic Four number 46, The Inhumans are back, and Stan suggests that you do not miss this issue. I disagree. Spider-Man number 33, and uh, we've never seen Spidey more dazzling nor dramatic. Okay. Avengers number 24, Trapped in the Future. Daredevil number 12 features two villains. Which villains? Well, who knows? Thor number 124 is an offbeat, unexpected shocker. It probably has him fighting Hercules for the 400th time. Strange Tales number 141. Nick Fury faces a life-and-death struggle, and Doctor Strange faces the Dread Dormammu. Tales to Astonish 76. Namor finally comes to the surface world. Again. And the Hulk has a new super foe. Tales of Suspense 74, The Fate of Happy Hogan will leave us absolutely breathless. And Captain America only has seconds to save the world. Finally, Sergeant Fury number 26 has Dum Dum Duggan stealing the show and our hearts. Okay, maybe not that last part. But anyway, that is everything. Everything except the ads, and uh, we will be peppering some ads in in the coming episodes here. They don't change all that much. There'll be a few novel uh, ads that we will cover, but like I said, for the most part, it's the same old, same old, you know. You want to get muscles, you want to play pranks on your neighbors, if you want to sell grit, it's that kind of thing over and over again. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. But that's going to do it for us today. Um, If you'd like to write in and join the show, I'd love for you to do so. You can find me several different ways on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook, 90s X-Men on Facebook. We have a lot of fun conversations in there, and I'd love to see you uh, be a part of it. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. I recently put up a total package episode compiling our 10 hours, 10 plus hours, of Age of Apocalypse discussion here, which uh, 
took probably about six months to put together. So it was a, uh, a big project, one that we were very proud of, and one that I hope uh, reaches some new ears and maybe uh, gets a few revisits or re-listens from uh, some folks who listened to it initially back in the long ago. And uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Age of Apocalypse as well. We can share those comments on the main X-Lapse program and hopefully find some fun conversations to uh, be had there. But that's going to do it for me today. I would like to thank you all so much for letting me take up residence in your ears for a little while today. And also, I would like to apologize if my voice sounds any uh, different today. Uh, My mouth certainly feels different, so um, it wouldn't surprise me much if... uh, if I'm coming across a little different, hopefully it's not too terrible or distracting, and hopefully I uh, get over it soon enough. But uh, thank you all so, so much one more time, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 24 of the Essential X-Lapse, where I'm kind of sitting here in shock a little bit. Um, When I started these Essential episodes here, I was worried that these episodes would be very short, right? There wouldn't be a whole heck of a lot to talk about because, I mean, it's a Silver Age story. What really is there to talk about? Then we added the letters pages, then we added the bullpen, then we added the Merry Marvel Marching Society and the Mighty Marvel Checklist, and, uh, well, I'm looking at my script, and it's, uh, it's over 20 pages, which, I mean, that's almost cosmic treadmill levels of, uh, of length there, so I suppose I should probably stop yapping and, uh, get on into it. So, uh, let's do it. This is X-Men number 17, February 1966, cover date. 
Stories called And None Shall Survive, written and edited by Stan Lee, layouts Jack Kirby, pencils Werner Roth as Jay Gavin, inks Dick Ayers, letters Artie Simic, colors, um, well, uh, if you look at the cover here, it's probably a very big fan of the color red. And if you open the book up, it's someone who is a really big fan of the colors green and blue. So uh, that might triangulate who our uh, phantom colorist is. And it has a cover price of 12 cents. Now, as mentioned, this one's got a cover that'll stand out to you. It is blaringly red. I mean, it, it might make your head hurt. And on it, uh, Stan actually channels his inner Hitchcock, uh, warning us not to share the final panel with anyone. Because uh, Marvel will be watching, and they know. They'll know if you did. So I wonder, what could that final panel be revealing? Well, of course, we will get there. Now, our story opens similarly to how the Juggernaut two-parter ended, in a, in a way. Uh, we have the X-Men injured and being tended to. Not by Nurse Jean, however, but by literal green army men and blue police officers. Like, the only colors they are are blue and green. Turns out that Xavier lifted his mental control over the officers from last issue. Now, if you remember, he blocked out their ability to see the X-Men breaking out of the Sentinel's underground fortress before it went boom to try to, uh, I guess, maybe disguise the fact that he's working with them or just keep them safe or just out of view. He's changed his mind. He wants the X-Men to get credit for uh, taking down the Sentinel, so bada-bing, bada-boom. So, let's get a better look at our injuries here. Scott has some scrapes. Now, the barefoot beast's bare foot might be broken. Hank warns the medic that each of his toes is priceless. And, well, I'm not so sure about that. I, I bet that Bernard the Poet could probably affix a value to each of those toes. Angel and Jean are enjoying cups of coffee. And Iceman is just kind of out of it. Now, a general thanks Professor X for his bravery in escorting his troops and the officers out there to stop the Sentinels. So once again, Xavier gets all the credit. Um, anyway, uh, Chuck replies all casually as not to tip anyone off that he's with the X-Men. Uh, you know, despite the fact that they're always seen together, like always, uh, Xavier starts with the letter X. He was just on TV advocating for them. The X-Helicopter takes off and lands in his backyard. And of course, Iceman and Cyclops were dropped off at his house by that ice cream man way back in issue number two. Anyway... The general says that from now on, they'll only view the X-Men as heroes. Yeah, right. He then orders a captain to order his men to search the ruins of the Sentinel base. A medic approaches Professor Xavier, for whatever reason, in order to advise that Beast, Cyclops, and Iceman were injured enough during the ordeal that they're going to have to be brought in for treatment. Xavier asks if it would be okay if Angel and Jean drove him back home, which, I mean, that's a natural request for a complete stranger to make, right? The medic, unsurprisingly, does not give a rat's ass one way or another. He's like, yeah, go, go wherever you want. I don't, what do I care? We jump over to Stanley time progression land, which is seconds later, where the hurt fellas are being whisked away to a local medical facility. Xavier makes sure to tell them all not to reveal their civilian identities, and this will come back around. Meanwhile, the army is exploring the ruins of Trask land. What'll they find? Well, since we're not going to see them again, we might assume Bupkis. We jump ahead a short time later to the Hushed Hospital. Now, Iceman has slipped into critical condition, having slipped out of consciousness during the ambulance ride in. Oh, and Professor X is here too. I, I thought he was going home. I guess not. 
Now, the doctor proclaims that due to Iceman's mutant nature, he hasn't the foggiest idea what might be going on with him. Bobby manages to wriggle around a bit and mumble some stuff about being the youngest X-Man, because, uh, well, that is his, uh, that is his character trait. The doctor believes the boy has become delirious and tells Xavier that he better get out of here so he can, you know, take a closer look. Now, Charles worries that Iceman might be the first X-Man to perish. Well, actually, he worries more about how that would make him a failure rather than Iceman's actual mortality. The prof continues his whirlwind hospital tour, and his next stop is the Beast's room. Now, Charles immediately reminds Hank, the smartest of the X-Men, not to remove his mask. Which, I mean, no duh, really? Now, all Beast wants to know is how Bobby's doing, which tells us that he cares more than Xavier does. Uh, The doc tells him that he's critically delirious. He then turns to Xavier to advise how much easier this would be if the big boy would unmask. And, uh, well, a couple of things here. First of all, why would that make a foot exam easier? Because, I mean, all that's wrong with Hank is that his feet were hurting. And second, why would he ask Xavier for this since Xavier and the X-Men have no association? I don't know. Well, here's the rub. The doc just wants to know who this kid is so that he might find out who the kid's parents are. The way he figures, this might help humanity learn so much more about mutation. And, uh, well, he... He might not be wrong there, and this will come around a little bit more next issue. Now, this makes Xavier think about the weak link in the chain of their security, which is the parents of the X-Men. He wonders what could happen if the X-Men's identities ever did get out, and if any evil mutants might use that information to their advantage. And I feel like now I should take a second out to ask you all if you're uh, managing to dodge them anvils all right. Because, uh... They're falling at a uh, rapid clip here. Now, meanwhile, out at the nurse's station, uh, the angel, who I thought went home, is using the nurse's phone to check in on the mansion's messages. So, uh, wow, I guess this was a thing back in the mid-70s? Or is this further evidence of Xavier's advanced technology, you know, calling in for your messages? Now, he is hovering close to the ceiling to ensure none of the nurses could see the number that he dialed. Now, it turns out that there is a message waiting for the X-Men from Warren's own parents, the very supportive Long Island Worthingtons who we met a few issues back. Now, he mentally advises the prof that his folks are worried that they haven't heard back from him since he ran out on their dinner back uh, in issue 14 or so, and so they're going to swing by the school for a visit. Uh Uh-oh. So Xavier demands he be handed the phone to try to dissuade them from coming, because first of all, they're going to find the place empty, Second, he just can't shake the feeling of a, of a sort of danger coming from the school right now. Huh, some bad mojo coming from the school. I wonder what that could be. So, Chuck calls the Worthingtons to let him know that his students, you know, the graduates, uh, were off on a field trip gathering materials for a research paper. And I mean, you know, a lot of uh, graduates who aren't involved in any post-grad studies do that, right? You know, they write papers for their old professors. Okay. In any event, the Worthingtons will not be denied. They're coming to visit whether Xavier wants them to or not. And I gotta ask, I wonder what these nurses thought as they watched Xavier make a phone call on behalf of this winged mutant boy he has no association with. Anyway, Charles sends Warren back to the school to do some scouting around the area. And remember, he's got a bad feeling about the school right now, so, um, I mean, this might not be the wisest idea, but what are you gonna do? And so Warren skidoos, even getting uh, what might be the first ever full-page spread out of any of the X-Men. 
which really shows off how Werner Roth might still be a step or two behind King Kirby here. This is not a pleasant page. Now, as Angel approaches the mansion, we see a creepy purple-gloved figure has already beaten him there. Huh. Okay, so Warren lands and enters, only to be attacked by an axe. Now, you see, the professor, of course, is a rich guy. And all rich guys have suits of armor stood in their front hallways, right? I mean, that's just common sense. Now, this axe has been yoinked out of the armor's mitt and is sent right for our winged wonder as if by magnetic... Never mind. Um, Thankfully for Warren, you know, it's not a net coming at him, and so he's able to deftly dodge it before it could smash him to bits. He then darts down the hallway and does what so many birds do every day in my backyard. He flies smack into a pane of glass that had been strategically placed in his way. A bucket-headed shadow celebrates this and proclaims that this will be the first of many victories. Back at the hospital, Xavier checks in on Cyclops. Now, he's being looked over by a mustachioed doctor who insists he get a good look at the boy's eyes. Now, Scott, as you might imagine, is hesitant to, you know, blast this doctor's head clean off his shoulders, but the doctor won't give up. Xavier enters and mentally tells Scott to demonstrate how dread his cursed powers truly are. And so Cyclops blasts the little reflex hammer out of the doctor's hands, and now, and only now, the doctor finally understands. Was this really necessary? I mean, Cyclops' powers should be pretty well known by now, right? Oh well. Xavier asks if it'd be okay if Cyclops took him for a walk, which is a weird request to make of a total stranger. I mean, I don't even know why they're still doing this charade here. Couldn't Xavier just mind-wipe everybody? I mean, he's done it before, he'll do it again, so why not? The doctor doesn't care a whit, as he shouldn't, and so they head out to the hospital grounds real casual-like. Once under a shady tree, Chuck tells Scott what's going on, that he sent Angel back to the school, but that he's lost contact with him since. And still, he can't shake the feeling of dread about the place. And so the two of them are going to have to head back home. And we jump ahead exactly one hour. So Scott and Charles, they arrive back at the school driving at a breakneck speed, and it takes them one hour, so remember that. Once inside, Cyclops calls out for Warren, and he uh, refers to himself as Psyche. He's like, Warren, it's Psyche, or Angel, it's Psyche, which doesn't feel natural for him to be that casual. Then Cerebro starts screeching like an mf here. Uh, Professor X recognizes this particular screech, claiming that the machine only reacts in such a way when a most dangerous mutant threatens them. Now, as Xavier tinkers with the box, he's overcome by a bunch of random metal wires and hoses. And it's actually a mechanical mental wave distorter, which Xavier is able to tell us all about as he gets entangled. Though, once he is fully entangled, uh, he loses the ability to think at all. To make matters worse, a pane of glass lowers from the ceiling, separating Xavier's desk from the rest of the room. I mean, what room is this? Is this the danger room? I mean, what, what's going on here? A Cyclops blasts the glass, but it only reflects his beam right back at him, and then the lights go out. Cyclops spends an entire page fighting against a purple-gloved figure in the dark, before finally being KO'd with a crack to the skull. Back to the hospital. Beast is literally bouncing all over the place, so I guess his tootsies will be fine, and uh, the folks at the Coffee Gogo will be most pleased. Gene enters the room to lambast him for both his antics and his usage of $100 words. Because, you see, she's just a g-g-g-g-girl, so how is she supposed to keep up with such a big brain? 
Anyway, Jean is worried about Cyclops and the Professor and suggests that they head back to the school to check in on them. On the way out, however, they will check on Iceman, who is still unconscious. The doctor tells them that uh, he won't bother them anymore for their secret identities, but suggests that if they know who Iceman really is, maybe they ought to reach out and contact his parents because things are not looking great. Hank and Jean will take that under advisement, and then they jump out of a third-story window. So, it took Scott and Charles an hour to get home at breakneck speed, right? But Jean and Hank, they're just going to run there. So I suppose we can assume that this is like four or five hours later, right? That they arrive. Anyway, they get home. And once inside, they find that the floor has been replaced with frictionless glass, prompting them both to slip, slide, and slam all over the hallway. Jean manages to TK herself to a stop, but the beast falls down an elevator shaft, I think? I don't know. Anyway, Jean turns to the reader and to the interloper and instantly recognizes him. She lashes out with some TK hoodoo before passing out. You see, the room had been filled with sleeping gas, which I suppose only affects females because our mystery baddie doesn't seem all that bothered by it. The bucket-headed shadow then declares total victory, citing that the era of the X-Men is finally over. Back to the hospital, Iceman has reached a moment of crisis. The doctor is approached by a pair of news reporters trying to find out who this Iceman really is. The doc tells them both to pound sand as he heads back into the youngster's room. After the nurse explains the dire situation, the doctor concludes that their only course of action now is to use a risky new medication, a sulfa drug. Back to the mansion, the four other X-Men and Professor X are loaded into a steel gondola that's attached to a hot air balloon. Now our baddie locks them inside, with the gimmick being once the balloon hits 100,000 feet in the air, they'll all drop to their death. I mean, why not just kill them now and be done with it? I mean, they're out, they're out cold. Kill them. Just, just kill them. Well, it seems that this baddie is a little bit more theatric than this. Anyway, as the balloon rises, the Worthingtons arrive at the school. They ring the bell, and it's answered by, well, someone who introduces themselves as Power, as in I am power. Huh. Any guesses? Uh, Well, of course, after six entire issues, Magneto is back. And this reveal gets a full-page spread, and it's pretty ugly. Uh, Next episode, the milestone 25th episode of The Essential X Lapsed, maybe we'll find out how Mags managed to escape the stranger. But for now, how about we talk about this issue here? Um, Now, there's that phrase that so many of us fake-ass analysts like to rely on over and over again, uh, suspension of disbelief. And uh, we've talked about this before, how it's kind of on a wavelength, right? There are certain things that are just so fantastical that we can't help but to just accept it. You know, somebody can fly. You know, uh, angels got wings. Cyclops can blast things with his eyes. That stuff is so outlandish that it just... It makes logical sense in the context of the fantastical Marvel Universe, right? It's just something that... Is we accept it. We accept that gods walk on the earth there. We we accept those kind of things because they're so far gone from what we would accept as real in real life that it's just normal where we're within the context. But like I said, it's on a wave, right? So when you get to the more mundane things, it's harder and harder for us to suspend that disbelief anymore. What I'm referring to is the fact that Professor X is always with the X-Men. And nobody is putting two and two together that they might have some sort of an association. 
Like, there is no reason for Professor X to be at the hospital visiting in on these kids here over and over and over again. There's no reason why he should be asking for rides home from these complete strangers. It's it's just, it, it takes me out of the story. And, of course, I mean, we're not supposed to be thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, and we could lampshade it by saying that Professor X is doing something with his uh, mental abilities to shield or to mind wipe or whatever, but... It's like anybody with half a brain who is seeing this should be like, why is this creepy bald guy still hanging around with these kids? And, and oh wait, his last name starts with an X, and uh, wait a minute, that helicopter keeps taking off out of his backyard. It's, it feels like it would stand to reason that it, people should be figuring this stuff out. And sticking with the professor, I mean, he is just an awful character, isn't he? I mean, he really just sucks. He takes all the credit for basically everything. And the way he talks down to the students is just ridiculous. Like, hey, stupid, keep your mask on. It's like, you're, you're talking to Beast. He's, he's, he's a smart dude. He's not going to take his mask off in front of a bunch of uh, doctors. And, I mean, even if he did, you just mind-wipe them, right? So it's, I don't know, the professor is just not coming off um, all that great here. And it's kind of weird, because I came into the X-Men fandom like in like a lull between distrusting of Professor Xavier. Like, I came in early 90s where he was kind of this fatherly figure. He would be a voice of reason. People would come to him with their problems. He just seemed like someone that uh, really couldn't do much wrong. And I wouldn't think I wouldn't think him nefarious or sinister in any sort of way. Then, of course, you know, Onslaught happens. And uh, we, we foment a lot of distrust in Xavier, even to this very day where... We very seldom see him, you know, we, I don't think we've seen his face more than twice since Hoxpox hit. He's always wearing that helmet. But to go back to the Silver Age here, and it's like he's still kind of a jerk. <laughs> I mean, just a real glory hog. Huh? Gotta get all his stuff in. Gotta make sure he's front and center in, in just about every X-Men escapade. It's a... Uh, Without wanting anybody to know that he's actually a part of them It's very, very bizarre And definitely my main takeaway for this issue here Just, it's so hard to reconcile that uh, That this character is just there, lingering I mean, if you were ever a witness to a crime or to an accident And uh, after giving your statement to the police or to whoever You just don't leave I mean, would would they look at you funny being like You, you can go home now Hey, I mean, the, the accident was, was many hours ago. Uh, you said everything you're going to say. You can leave now. Uh, I mean, if you don't leave, we're going to start thinking that you might have had something to do with it. So maybe leave. It's a... I don't know. Maybe I'm definitely thinking way too hard about it. Uh, now, speaking of thinking of things too hard and how we will not think about things too hard, uh, Magneto's back. He's back after five or six issues away, uh, whisked to uh, wherever the hell the stranger brought him to. Uh, we will find out next issue how Magneto managed to escape and uh, come back to Earth, and uh, we might find out just how long he will be remaining on Earth. But uh, that'll be a discussion for next time. Let's uh, let's talk art for a little bit. Um, got some ugly faces here. <laughs> some real ugly faces here. Uh, the big pinup pages, we have two pinup pages in this book here, one with uh, Warren flying home and the other with Magneto revealing himself to the Worthingtons. And boy, um, yeah, these close-ups ain't great. Uh, the faces are just really, really ugly, contorted. It's just, uh, 
not pleasant to look at. And I mean, I'm on record as not being the hugest Kirby fan out there. I, I you know, like I've said, hot and cold on Kirby can take or leave his stuff with with a full respect and appreciation for exactly what he did in building the Marvel universe, right? But not my favorite stuff. And here we have uh, Werner Roth, and it's like, uh, let's let's get some Kirby faces in there. And I mean. From Kirby's time at DC, we know that not everybody loved his faces. I mean, most notably, uh, Kurt Swan would uh, redraw Superman's face over Kirby uh, art. So uh, it's weird that I'm asking for Kirby faces here instead of uh, Werner Roth because, woof, not great. Um, I feel like overall, uh, maybe Stan's overworked. I don't think that this is his best effort. I think... uh, uh, he's got a lot of irons in the fire right now, so it's hard to hold it against him. But, um, well, we'll see. Not too long from now, uh, Stan will be replaced on scripts. So uh, hopefully we'll see a vast, or at least a little bit of an improvement once uh, once we get to issue 20. So should you read this issue? Well, uh, I guess if you're a you know huge Magneto fan or a Magneto completionist, uh, sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Um just don't expect a whole heck of a lot, because uh, you won't be getting a whole heck of a lot. But uh, that is all I have to say about this issue. I suppose we ought to hop into the letters pages here. We do have a bunch of letters to get to. Let's start with Gary in Kansas. He loved issue number 14. He suggests that every time Cyclops uses his optic blast, he should be blown off the planet due to physics. Which, come on, uh, how... <laughs> We talk about this a lot. The uh, our letter hacks, um, they like to show themselves as being the smartest people in the room, and uh, they love to uh, bring in real life science and try to uh, reconcile it with fantastical comic book storytelling. Which could we stop, <laughs> please? Can we just accept this for what it is? I mean, and I, and I bet you, uh, Gary in Kansas, what is he going to think when he reads this issue and sees Professor X? Always with the X-Men, and still nobody putting two and two together that he might be one of them. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the pendulum has swung too far. Now, Gary is also quite pleased that the X-Men have gone monthly, and he hopes that Stan doesn't crack under the pressure, to which Stan suggests that he cracked long ago. And, uh, well, with these last few issues, um, yeah, Stan, Stan's tired. <laughs> Stan's a little tired. It's still fun stuff, of course, but, uh, He's a taste tired. Um, next, Doug in Indiana. Now, he learned that there was a famous missionary in China and Japan named Francis Xavier. And he was wondering if this is where Stan got the name for Professor X. Now, Stan fesses up. Now, he says that they wanted to call him Professor X. And then they had to figure out what the X stood for. And Xavier was the first name they could think of. Now, it's worth noting it'll eventually be revealed that Francis is Charles's middle name. So, I guess maybe everything comes back around full circle. By the way, Francis Xavier, born Francisco de Jasso y Aspilqueta, he was alive from April 7th, 1506 to December 3rd, 1552. He was venerated as St. Francis Xavier by Gregory the 15th on March 12th, 1622, and he is the patron saint of Catholic missions. Now, he was a Navarrese Catholic missionary and the co-founder of the Society of Jesus. So, the more you know. Next up, Leonard in New York. He considers X-Men 14 to be a master working of a masterpiece. He thought he would miss King Kirby on pencils, but he's pleased with Jay Gavin and Vince Coletta's work. Now, he wants to know where the rest of the New Mutants are, because we haven't seen any newbies in a while. 
Now, Stan says he's not sure where the new ones are, but asks if he liked the old one that came popping out of the woodwork in this very issue. So, uh, Leonard, balls in your court. We want to know. Robert in California. He was happy that, for an entire issue, the X-Men's costumes remained one color. Uh, He was unhappy that that color was blue instead of black. He liked the black on uh, yellow instead of the blue on yellow. He then asked for the X-Men's ages. And Stan, he answers uh, by saying he doesn't want to give exact ages because he's afraid he'll forget and wind up riling up the geeks in a later issue. So he generalizes. Cyclops is the oldest, but he's still a teen. The others are a few months older, except Iceman, who is about a year and a half younger. So anywhere you want to put him, I guess you're good to do so. Gordon in Washington. Now, he would like to see some in-character letters pages. Like, have fans write into a Marvel character and have them reply as that character. But he only wants serious questions. Serious questions, like, you know, if you want to ask the Beast how he got such big feet, or if you want to ask if the angel's wings feel the same as a bird's wings. Really, dude? (laughs) Okay. Now, he also feels like Marvel Comics used to be better, but now they feel like they just want money, suggesting that Stan write the ship or ship on out. Now, Stan suggests that Gordon probably works for brand Ech Comics. He then mocks him for his idea of serious questions, and rightfully so. And Stan cops to the concept that, uh, well, hell yeah, they want money. (laughs) I mean, and from here he pops into perfect Stan Lee shill mode, and he suggests that if Gordon likes the older stuff better, well, maybe he put his money where his mouth is and pick up fantasy masterpieces and Marvel's collector's item classics, which are reprinting some of that old stuff right this very minute. Next up, Brant in New Mexico. He liked the covered X-Men number 14. And he doesn't mind continuing stories now because the X-Men is a monthly mag. And he suggests giving Scott a war cry of, Beam on! What is it with these goofs and their war cries? I mean, at least Beam on is a little less perverse than Flap on or Flaps up or whatever it was for Warren. Um, now Stan mocks the suggestion and he, he adds a few of his own to uh, kind of rub salt in it. He says, why stop with Cyclops? Professor X can have a war cry of, think on. Iceman can say, freeze on. And Hulk can say, green skin on. And so on, and so on, and so on. Jim in Massachusetts. Now, he takes issue with another letter hack from issue number 13. Now, this is the one who said the X-Men over-rely on Professor X and also had a problem with the harm-no-human-Cohen law. I, I mean, ethical code. Uh, Jim says that this letter hack sounds like a fanatical sadist who won't be satisfied until he sees blood. Wow, so we have uh, we had message board flame wars even back in 1966. Go figure. Jim also claims to enjoy Stan's boisterous bragging about how great Marvel comics are, and he can't wait to see how the X-Men defeat the Sentinels. Now, Stan replies by uh, claiming not to remember if the X-Men actually did defeat the Sentinels or not, because he's a, he's a very busy man, you see. Uh, Sal in Jersey... And uh uh-oh, Sal's got himself a hot take. He suggests that they title all future issues of X-Men as, quote, the decline and fall of the artist's empire. Because the art sucks, you see. Uh, Jay Gavin and Vince Coletta blow chunks. He says the Hulk could draw a better book using only a slap of fence. But the story was okay. And uh, Stan warns that Vince might make Sal sleep with the fishes for a statement like that. Uh... Well, no, he just threatens that Vince might quit. But personally, I hope that, uh, that Sal didn't send in his full address. You know, just, just in case, just to be safe. 
Uh, we got Nabil in Jordan. He says Stan Lee's the best. He's such a nice man that he personally responded to a letter he'd written to him a few years back. He thinks Marvel's great because they have a club and they give out free stuff. Now, Stan tells him to keep his kindness on the down low and thanks him for writing in and dropping the dough on airmail postage from all the way in Jordan. We wrap up the letters with Jacob in New York, who wants Magneto back. And he claims that people only ever bought X-Men comics because they love Magneto. But uh, he says he won't buy any more X-Men unless Magneto comes back. And what's more, he'll tell his friends not to either. So I tell you, talk about a well-timed missive, and uh, Stan informs Jake that uh, Maggie's back in town. We get a next-ish blurb where Jay Gavin takes over the art altogether, much to the dismay of whoever that was that uh, said his art sucked. So uh, I guess it's going to be a hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more or something for uh, King Kirby. We get no announcements on the letters page here, but there is an ad for fantasy masterpieces, which is Marvel stories from the Golden Age. And uh, I tell you what, for a book in 1966, it always tickles me when they refer to the ages of comics, even back then. Like, like who told them it was the Golden Age? Like, where did that even start? I, I love that kind of that kind of stuff. Uh, we do have our bullpen bulletin, so let's get into that. We're going to start with the How About That department. Uh, brand Ech, Y, and Z are mimicking the mighty Marvel style in their mags. And Stan refers to the competition as panicky pussycats delivering watered-down versions of Marvel Madness. And uh, Stan is going to become quite catty about Brand Ech pretty soon here. The bullpen bulletins is going to be... A real uh, conduit of negativity about the comics industry from Stan And it's it's going to be a lot of fun to cover Stan's going to pull no punches He's not going to name names But uh, it's going to be pretty brutal It's going to be good It's going to be fun uh, To the Did You Know department Do you know why Marvel changed the Avengers lineup? Hmm? Do you know? Do you? Do you want to know? Well, I can tell you It's all about continuity You see with Iron Man, Thor, and Giant Man All starring in their own strips Stan didn't want to have them in two different places at once. Now, I mean, do I even have to ask this question? Okay, I'll ask it. Could you even begin to imagine people giving half a crap about that today? I mean, how great would comics be? Um, now, this is also the same reason why he yanked Ben and Johnny out of Strange Tales, so it wouldn't conflict with what they're doing in Fantastic Four. God bless them. I mean, this is how a shared universe ought to be. I mean, it'll never be this again, but... uh Boy, how fun was it while it lasted? It, it makes me nostalgic for a time that I, uh, that I wasn't even walking this planet. Let's head to the utter confusion department, where we're going to talk about uh, shifting artists around, or where artists will be remaining. Uh, John Romita will be doing a Hulk story. Adam Austin, uh, a.k.a. Gene Colan, will be sticking around on Iron Man. Dick Ayers will be doing a whole lot more inking. And Joe Sinnott will be sticking around on inks on Fantastic Four. The Strictly Personal Department. Now, there's a bit about the Marvel Method and how their artists are actually storytellers, right? We know that the Marvel Method is what the Marvel Method is. And Stan introduces us to Johnny Hayes, Marvel's business manager and all-around swell guy. Into our wrap-up, which is basically another pitch for fantasy masterpieces. Bi-monthly, 12 cents. Would someone please buy this book? Please, please, we're begging. Buy this book. Uh, we get 26 new members to the Merry Marvel Marching Society. Nobody that I recognize and nobody with a name funny enough to mention. And into the mighty Marvel checklist here. Um, we're going to start with Fantastic Four number 48, where 
I think something important might have happened in this one. Maybe? Huh, I wonder. Uh, Spider-Man number 34 versus Kraven the Hunter. And I think this is the issue that Deadpool gumped back in 1997 or so. Uh, Reggie and I did a cosmic treadmill on this episode where uh, it's basically taking Deadpool, pasting him over Spider-Man, like making it as though he was in this story, kind of like with Forrest Gump, like being with John F. Kennedy and stuff like that. In that vein, it was a lot of fun and a really fun story to uh, discuss. I think this was the original. Uh, Avengers number 25 features the Avengers versus the most dangerous villain ever. Okay. Daredevil number 13 features the Plunderer and Kazar. Or Kazar. Thor 125 features uh, Hercules again. Again. Uh, Strange Tales 142. Shield does stuff. Doctor Strange does stuff too. Tales of Suspense 75. Iron Man's in trouble and Cap meets Batroc Zilliper. Tales to Astonish 77. Major Talbot figures out the Hulk's secret identity. And Submariner in the surface world. And you'll never guess who he'll run into. It's Wasp and Giant Man. I guess that's a big deal. Sergeant Fury number 27 gives us the truth behind Nick Fury's eye patch. And finally, Marvel Masterpieces number one has Golden Age goodness, of course. Anybody want to talk Merry Marvel Marching Society? No? Well, we're going to anyway. Um, There's a Merry Marvel Marching Society ad adjacent to the bullpen pages. They're really, really pushing this thing, which is great. You know, it's great that they're trying to uh, build up a community. I... I think I should uh, try to take some uh, take some notes here and see if I can do it myself. Um, now, in it, we get the Hulk and Doctor Doom talking about all the ginchy goodness of the MMMS. And Doom reveals that he's wearing a brand new Hulk sweatshirt, yours for $2.98. Now, we only see the front of it, but they promise a huge surprise on the back. And I could only imagine what... The, oh, okay, okay, I, I know what this one is. I, you probably do as well if you're listening to the show. It's a fairly iconic t-shirt. Or sweatshirt, I suppose. The front of it says, here comes the Hulk, and it has the Hulk charging toward us. You know, charging toward whoever's looking at it. The back of it has the Hulk's back, and it says, there goes the Hulk. It's it's a fairly iconic shirt. You probably would recognize it if uh, if you saw it. Uh, also... In addition to this $3 sweatshirt, you can also get your Spidey six-foot pinup for a buck ninety-nine, your superhero stationery set for a dollar, or your X-Men t-shirt for $1.50. And that does it for the issue outside of the ads, which uh, don't change all that often. I think in the next episode we'll be taking a look at a couple of fun ads here, but uh, yeah, they're all the same stuff, you know, build your muscles, do a prank on your neighbor, it's uh... It's nothing really, nothing that nobody else has ever talked about before, but uh, we might find something interesting in the next couple of episodes. But before we cut out of here, we do have a few letters of our own to discuss here. Now we're going to start with our friend Billy D talking about X-Men number 14. And uh, he channels his inner Nightcrawler and says, Ming got these letters pages with uh, some smiley, laughy emojis after it. And yes, these letters pages, <laughs> they are they are a blast. Um, I... You know, it's like I could almost just do a show on these letters pages. That might actually be a fun show to do. Just go through all, you know, Silver Age comics, Marvel and DC both, and just start pulling letters pages and talking about, you know, just the tone and tenor of the day, seeing how fans were reacting to certain things, seeing some arguments in the letters pages. That is, that's the part that's like the most shocking to me is that we've got letter writers arguing with other letter writers and, uh, Coming to Stanley's aid or, or putting Stan on the train tracks. It's just, it's weird. It's a lot of fun. 
Uh, Billy continues, The Sentinels at this point aren't that great in my opinion, so I was glad when they were revived and made giant size later on. Anyone that doesn't know how much of a creep Xavier was back then should really be listening in. Really good episode. Well, thank you so much for writing in. And yes, Xavier will continue to be as creepy as only he can be. It's uh, <laughs> definitely going to continue. And, you know, yeah, I agree with you about the Sentinels here. I, um, trying to remember... Yes, yes, we actually did this as an issue of Mary X Lapsed around Christmas last year. It was, uh... I think it was X-Men number 98 or 97. It was uh, post-Giant Size, of course, and Claremont was there. And we had the X-Men in uh, at Rockefeller Center, and they were attacked by the Giant Sentinels. And I can't remember if that's the first time we saw them as Giant-sized um, Sentinels, but definitely a lot more fun as as big, huge, giant robots than these... Yeah, sort of just very tall robots. It's a little bit uh, less imposing. And also how they, they all talk kind of like Brooklyn cabbies rather than, you know, dead-voiced robots is a little less uh, imposing. <laughs> but yes, I definitely agree. They're better, bigger, and good God willing, we'll get there eventually. Uh, next up, we got Damien talking about X-Men number two. And he says, This issue really felt thrown together. There seemed to be quite a few little inconsistencies appearing. Professor X is already appearing older than Stan had made him in the first issue when he referenced his parents working on nuclear research. I expect that he had forgotten that detail by the time he came to write this month's dialogue and just went off the art, which always depicted Professor X as older. Of course, the most obvious error is Jean's teleportation. As you say, it shows that nobody should really be their own editor. And you know, that really makes me ask a question here about Xavier, and, and actually about, like, the fandom of the early 60s here. You figure... What would bring a kid to a comic? Would it be the words or would it be the art? It would probably be the art, at least initially, right? So you come in for the art, and you see this man in a wheelchair, and he looks older. I mean, he looks a fair amount older than the uh, students here. Uh, I would think of him as being a man in his 40s, just by the art, like without any kind of words, dialogue, anything like that. I would picture him in his 40s or 50s just by looking at him. So I wonder if, like, kids of the day thought of him as just, like, being like twice the age, at least twice the age, of the X-Men, which uh, only makes it creepier with issue 3's revelation that he, uh, he's he got the hot pants for, for Ms. Gray. And yeah, Jean's teleportation. I, I had a little bit of fun with that, uh, simply because, I mean, it's, it's fun to have fun with stuff like that. Um, Damien continues, You were reading this book in black and white, so you missed one of the silliest errors when they talk about that red ice cream van, which is clearly white. The whole ice cream van thing looks ludicrous in hindsight. Clearly, the hated and feared bit was not in the earliest conception of the team. Kirby is obviously depicting them in the same way he did the Fantastic Four, as celebrities as well as superheroes. It'll be interesting to see when the anti-mutant rhetoric starts. I imagine it has to be there by the Sentinel story, but I guess we'll find out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't think there was any sort of fear and hate implied here. I, I know that it was always kind of an underlying thing, uh... It was actually more that the mutants feared the way they'd be treated rather than the humans fearing the mutants outright. This even goes back to that amazing adult fantasy story that introduced us to whatever that guy's name was. I don't remember his name, but it was Amazing Adult Fantasy number 14, which was the first mention of a mutant in uh, Marvel chronology. And in that, you know, he was whisked away by that, uh, by that fella to join that order or whatever it was. And that was due to the mutants themselves fearing that they wouldn't be accepted, rather than, 
humanity having an overt fear and hatred towards them. Professor X basically says as much in the first issue of X-Men here. It's like he doesn't know if humans are ready to have mutants, you know, walk side by side with them. And the fear and hate part kind of crept in around issue 8, so a little bit before the uh, Sentinel story, uh, and it was uh, quite out of nowhere and quite forced. (laughs) And we talked about that a lot during that issue and uh, continue to, especially uh, as the fear and hate is inconsistent, you know? Sometimes they're loved, sometimes they're hated, sometimes they're told they'll be looked at as heroes, sometimes they're shot at by police. Uh, Maybe when Roy Thomas takes over, things will be a little bit more even keel, especially considering he doesn't have to write and edit like a dozen books a month. So maybe he'll be able to keep things straight, and maybe we'll see a little bit more consistency uh, from that point on. Uh, Damien wraps up with, I'm really enjoying these essential episodes. They're a real palate cleanser between the often dense modern comics. It was a great idea to go right back to the beginning while you await your orders. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for checking these episodes out, Damien. I was hoping that you would, and I was hoping that you'd dig them. And uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to go back to um, in our off time between DCBS orders. Didn't know where to go. I, I talked about this uh, probably in the first episode of The Essentials here, which is now 24 episodes ago, which is pretty wild to me. But I was thinking about doing the Rosenberg run, you know, I was thinking about doing post-giant size, which, I mean, that's kind of the go-to, you know, a lot of a lot of folks leave out the Silver Age stuff. And I think if you want to start an X-Men podcast, it's like, well, where do you start? Oh, with giant size, of course, and I, I figure anybody can do that. <laughs> and, I mean, that's probably the smart play, because more people are going to be interested in those stories than these Silver Age ones, but... You guys know me. I'm a completionist and a fake-ass comics historian, so if we're going to start at the beginning, well, damn it, we're going to start at the beginning. So here we are with the Silver Age, and I mean, look at how far we've come. We're almost a third of the way through the first 66, which, that's pretty cool. We'll be there before we know it, and then we're going to get into some really fun and really weird Bronze Age stuff, the guest appearances of the X-Men, then we'll hop right into Giant Size and uh, hit the ground running, so... Hope you're all looking forward to that. I know I am. I just hope uh, we're able to keep it going that long. So uh, we will see. We'll play it by ear, and uh, we will keep our fingers crossed hoping for the best. But uh, thank you guys so much for writing in. If anybody out there would like to write in and be a part of the show and maybe talk about these silly Silver Age stories or basically any X-Men stuff you'd like to discuss, please, please feel free to do so. You can find me a few different places. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men, and you can hear the entire archives and all the Chris and Reggie goodness at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And I think that's going to do it for today. And, uh, wow, we're around 45 minutes, which is at least twice as long as I thought these essential episodes were going to go. So uh, I guess once you get me started, I just uh, refuse to stop. But anyway, I would like to thank you all so, so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.